BetMGM has an unreal deal for sports fans in Virginia. Turn $5 into $150 instantly when you place your first wager at BetMGM. Simply download the BetMGM app and sign up using code CHAMPION150. Then, place a $5 wager on any sport. You'll receive $150 in bonus bets, regardless of your wager's outcome. And if you think the fun stops there, the king of sportsbooks has plenty of surprises in store. Check out daily promotions, same game parlays, live bets, and so much more. Download the app in Virginia today and get $150 in bonus bets instantly from your first wager only at BetMGM. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. See BetMGM.com for terms. 21 plus only. Virginia only. New customer offer. Subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Please gamble responsibly. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Promotional offer not available in Washington, D.C. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Chapter 63 of The Count of Monte Cristo by Alexandre Dumas. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter 63 The Dinner It was evident that one sentiment affected all the guests on entering the dining room. Each one asked what strange influence had brought them to this house, and yet, astonished, even uneasy though they were, they still felt that they would not like to be absent. The recent events, the solitary and eccentric position of the Count, his enormous, nay, almost incredible fortune, should have made men cautious, and have altogether prevented ladies visiting a house where there was no one of their own sex to receive them. And yet, curiosity had been enough to lead them to overleap the bounds of prudence and decorum. And all present, even including Cavalcanti and his son, notwithstanding the stiffness of the one and the carelessness of the other, were thoughtful on finding themselves assembled, at the house of this incomprehensible man. Madame d'Anglars had started when Villefort, on the Count's invitation, offered his arm, and Villefort felt that his glance was uneasy beneath his gold spectacles when he felt the arm of the Baroness press upon his own. None of this had escaped the Count, and even by this mere contact of individuals the scene had already acquired considerable interest for an observer. Monsieur de Villefort had on the right hand Madame d'Anglars, on his left Morel. The Count was seated between Madame de Villefort and d'Anglars. The other seats were filled by de Bray, who was placed between the two Cavalcanti, and by Chateau Renaud, seated between Madame de Villefort and Morel. The repast was magnificent. Monte Cristo had endeavoured completely to overturn the Parisian ideas and to feed the curiosity as much as the appetite of his guests. It was an oriental feast that he offered to them, but of such a kind as the Arabian fairies might be supposed to prepare. Every delicious fruit that the four quarters of the globe could provide was heaped in vases from China and jars from Japan. Rare birds retaining their most brilliant plumage, enormous fish 
spread upon massive silver dishes, together with every wine produced in the archipelago, Asia Minor, or the Cape, sparkling in bottles, whose grotesque shape seemed to give an additional flavour to the draught. All these, like one of the displays with which Apicius of old gratified his guests, passed in view before the eyes of the astonished Parisians, who understood that it was possible to expend the thousand louis upon a dinner for ten persons, but only on the condition of eating pearls like Cleopatra, or drinking refined gold like Lorenzo de' Medici. Monte Cristo noticed the general astonishment, and began laughing and joking about it. Gentlemen, he said, you will admit that when arrived at a certain degree of fortune, the superfluities of life are all that can be desired, and the ladies will allow that, after having risen to a certain eminence of position, the ideal alone can be more exalted. Now, to follow out this reasoning, what is the marvellous? That which we do not understand. What is it that we really desire? That which we cannot obtain. Now, to see things which I cannot understand, to procure impossibilities, these are the study of my life. I gratify my wishes by two means, my will and my money. I take as much interest in the pursuit of some whim as you do, Monsieur Donglard, in promoting a new railway line. You, Monsieur de Villefort, in condemning a culprit to death. You, Monsieur de Bray, in pacifying a kingdom. You, Monsieur de Chateaurenau, in pleasing a woman. And you, Morel, in breaking a horse that no one can ride. For example, you see these two fish, one brought from fifty leagues beyond St. Petersburg, the other five leagues from Naples. Is it not amusing to see them both on the same table? What are the two fish? asked Donglard. Monsieur Chateau Renaud, who has lived in Russia, will tell you the name of one, and Major Cavalcanti, who is in Italian, will tell you the name of the other. This one is, I think, a sterlet, said Chateau Renaud. And that one, if I mistake not, a lamprey. Just so. Now, Monsieur Donglard, ask these gentlemen where they are caught. Sterlet, said Chateau Renaud, are only found in the Volga. And, said Cavalcanti, I know that Lake Fusaro alone supplies lampreys of that size. Exactly. One comes from the Volga, and the other from Lake Fusaro. Impossible, cried all the guests simultaneously. Well, this is just what amuses me, said Monte Cristo. I am like Nero, Cupitor, Impossibilium, and that is what is amusing you at this moment. This fish, which seems so exquisite to you, is very likely no better than perch or salmon, but it seemed impossible to procure it, and here it is. But how could you have these fish brought to France? Oh, nothing more easy. Each fish was brought over in a cask, one filled with river, herbs and weeds, the other with rushes and lake plants. They were placed in a wagon built on purpose 
and thus the sterlet lived twelve days, the lamprey eight, and both were alive when my cook seized them, killing one with milk and the other with wine. You do not believe me, Monsieur Donglar. I cannot help doubting, answered Donglar with his stupid smile. Baptistine, said the Count, have the other fish brought in, the sterlet and the lamprey which came in the other casks, and which are yet alive. Danglars opened his bewildered eyes. The company clapped their hands. Four servants carried in two casks covered with aquatic plants, and in each of which was breathing a fish similar to those on the table. But why have two of each sort? asked Danglars. Merely because one might have died, carelessly answered Monte Cristo. You are certainly an extraordinary man, said Danglars. And philosophers may well say it is a fine thing to be rich. And to have ideas, added Madame Danglars. Oh, do not give me credit for this, Madame. It was done by the Romans, who much esteemed them, and Pliny relates that they sent slaves from Ostia to Rome, who carried on their heads fish which he calls the mules, and which from description must probably be the goldfish. It was also considered a luxury to have them alive, it being an amusing sight to see them die, for when dying they change colour three or four times, and like the rainbow when it disappears, pass through all the prismatic shades, after which they were sent to the kitchen. Their agony formed part of their merit. If they were not seen alive, they were despised when dead. Yes, said Debray, but then Ostia is only a few leagues from Rome. True, said Monte Cristo. But what would be the use of living eighteen hundred years after Lucullus, if we can do no better than he could? The two Cavalcanti opened their enormous eyes, but had the good sense not to say anything. All this is very extraordinary, said Chateau Renaud. Still, what I admire the most, I confess, is the marvellous promptitude with which your orders are executed. Is it not true that you only brought this house five or six days ago? Certainly not longer. Well, I am sure it is quite transformed since last week. If I remember rightly, it had another entrance, and the courtyard was paved and empty. While today we have a splendid lawn, bordered by trees which appear to be a hundred years old. Why not? I am fond of grass and shade, said Monte Cristo. Yes, said Madame de Villefort. The door was toward the road before, and on the day of my miraculous escape, you brought me into the house from the road, I remember. Yes, madame, said Monte Cristo, but I preferred having an entrance which would allow me to see the Bois de Boulogne over my gate. In four days, said Morel, it is extraordinary. Indeed, said Chateau Renaud, it seems quite miraculous to make a new house out of an old one, for it was very old and dull too, 
I recollect coming from my mother to look at it when Monsieur de Saint-Méran advertised it for sale two or three years ago. Monsieur de Saint-Méran, said Madame de Villefort, then this house belonged to Monsieur de Saint-Méran before you bought it? It appears so, replied Monte Cristo. Is it possible that you do not know of whom you purchased it? Quite so. My steward transacts all this business for me. It is certainly ten years since the house had been occupied, said Chateau Renaud, and it was quite melancholy to look at it, with the blinds closed, the doors locked, and the weeds in the court. Really, if the house had not belonged to the father-in-law of the procureur, one might have thought it some accursed place where a horrible crime had been committed. Villefort, who had hitherto not tasted the three or four glasses of rare wine which were placed before him, here took one and drank it off. Monte Cristo allowed a short time to elapse, and then said, It is singular, Baron, but the same idea came across me the first time I came here. It looked so gloomy I should never have bought it if my steward had not taken the matter into his own hands. Perhaps the fellow had been bribed by the notary. It is probable, stammered out Villefort, trying to smile. But I can assure you that I had nothing to do with any such proceeding. This house is part of Valentine's marriage portion, and Monsieur de Saint-Marin wished to sell it. For if it had remained another year or two uninhabited, it would have fallen to ruin. It was Morel's turn to become pale. There was, above all, one room, continued Monte Cristo, very plain in appearance, hung with red damask, which, I know not why, appeared to me quite dramatic. Why so? said Danglars. Why dramatic? Can we account for instinct? said Monte Cristo. Are there not some places where we seem to breathe sadness? Why, we cannot tell. It is a chain of recollections, an idea which carries you back to other times, to other places, which very likely have no connection with the present time and place. And there is something in this room which reminds me forcibly of the chamber of the Marquise de Ganges, or Desdemona. Stay, since we have finished dinner, I will show it to you, and then we will take coffee in the garden. After dinner, the play. Monte Cristo looked inquiringly at his guests. Madame de Villefort rose. Monte Cristo did the same, and the rest followed their example. Villefort and Madame Danglars remained for a moment. As if rooted to their seats, they questioned each other with vague and stupid glances. Did you hear? said Madame Danglars. We must go replied Villefort, offering his arm. The others, attracted by curiosity, were already scattered in different parts of the house, for they thought the visit would not be limited to the one room, and that, at the same time, they would obtain a view of the rest of the building, of which Monte Cristo had created a palace. Each one went out by the open doors. Monte Cristo waited for the two who remained. Then, when they had passed, he brought up the rear, and on his face was a smile, which, if they could have understood it, 
would have alarmed them much more than a visit to the room they were about to enter. They began by walking through the apartments, many of which were fitted up in the eastern style with cushions and divans instead of beds and pipes instead of furniture. The drawing rooms were decorated with the rarest pictures by the old masters. The boudoir hung with the draperies from China of fanciful colours, fantastic design and wonderful texture. At length they arrived at the famous room. There was nothing particular about it, excepting that, although daylight had disappeared, it was not lighted, and everything in it was old-fashioned, while the rest of the rooms had been redecorated. These two causes were enough to give it a gloomy aspect. Oh, cried Madame de Villefort, it is really frightful. Madame Danglars tried to utter a few words, but was not heard. Many observations were made, the import of which was a unanimous opinion that there was something sinister about the room. Is it not so? asked Monte Cristo. Look at that large, clumsy bed, hung with such gloomy, blood-coloured drapery, and those two crayon portraits that have faded from the dampness. Do not they not seem to say, with their pale lips and staring eyes, We have seen. Villefort became livid. Madame Danglars fell into a long seat placed near the chimney. Oh, said Madame de Villefort, smiling, are you courageous enough to sit down upon the very seat, perhaps, upon which the crime was committed? Madame Danglars rose suddenly. And then, said Monte Cristo, this is not all. What is there more? said Debray, who had not failed to notice the agitation of Madame Danglars. Or what else is there? said Danglars. For at present I cannot say that I have seen anything extraordinary. What do you say, Monsieur Cavalcanti? Ah, said he, we have at Pisa Ugiolino's tower, at Ferrara Tasso's prison, at Rimini the room of Francesca and Paolo. Yes, but you have not this little staircase, said Monte Cristo, opening a door concealed by the drapery. Look at it, and tell me what you think of it. What a wicked-looking, crooked staircase, said Chateau Renaud with a smile. I do not know whether the wine of Chios produces melancholy, but certainly everything appears to me black in this house, said Debray. Ever since Valentine's dowry had been mentioned, Morel had been silent and sad. Can you imagine, said Monte Cristo, some Othello or Abbe de Gange, one stormy dark night, descending these stairs step by step, carrying a load which he wishes to hide from the sight of man, if not from God? Madame Danglars half fainted on the arm of Villefort, who was obliged to support himself against the wall. Ah, madame, cried Debray, what is the matter with you? How pale you look! It is very evident what is the matter with her, said Madame de Villefort. Monsieur de Monte Cristo is relating horrible stories to us, doubtless intending to frighten us to death. Yes, said Villefort. Really, Count, you frighten the ladies. 
What is the matter? asked Debray in a whisper of Madame Danglars. Nothing, she replied with a violent effort. I, I want air. That is all. Will you come into the garden? said Debray, advancing towards the back staircase. No, no, she answered. I would rather remain here. Are you really frightened, madame? said Monte Cristo. Oh, no, sir, said Madame Danglars. But you suppose scenes in a manner which gives them the appearance of reality. Ah, yes, said Monte Cristo, smiling. It is all a matter of imagination. Why should we not imagine this the apartment of an honest mother? And this bed with red hangings, a bed visited by the goddess Lucina, and that mysterious staircase, the passage through which, not to disturb their sleep, the doctor and nurse pass, or even the father, carrying the sleeping child. Here, Madame Danglars, instead of being calmed by the soft picture, uttered a groan and fainted. Madame Danglars is ill, said Villefort. It would be better to take her to her carriage. Oh, mon Dieu! said Monte Cristo. And I have forgotten my smelling bottle. I have mine, said Madame de Villefort, and she passed over to Monte Cristo a bottle full of the same kind of red liquid whose good properties the Count had tested on Edward. Ah, said Monte Cristo, taking it from her hand. Yes, she said. At your advice, I have made the trial. And have you succeeded? I think so. Madame Danglars was carried into the adjoining room. Monte Cristo dropped a very small portion of the red liquid upon her lips. She returned to consciousness. Ah! she cried. What a frightful dream! Villefort pressed her hand to let her know it was not a dream. They looked for Monsieur Danglars, but as he was not especially interested in poetical ideas, he had gone into the garden and was talking with Major Cavalcanti on the projected railway from Leghorn to Florence. Monte Cristo seemed in despair. He took the arm of Madame Danglars and conducted her into the garden, where they found Danglars taking coffee between the Cavalcanti. Really, madame, he said, did I alarm you much? Oh, no, sir, she answered. But, you know, things impress us differently according to the mood of our minds. Villefort forced a laugh. And then you know, he said, an idea, a supposition, is sufficient. Well, said Monte Cristo, you may believe me if you like, but it is my opinion that a crime has been committed in this house. Take care, said Madame de Villefort. The king's attorney is here. Ah, replied Monte Cristo, since that is the case, I will take advantage of his presence to make my declaration. Your declaration? said Villefort. Yes, before witnesses. Oh, this is very interesting, said Debray. If there really has been a crime, we will investigate it. There has been a crime, said Monte Cristo. Come this way, gentlemen. Come, Monsieur Villefort, for a declaration to be available should be made before the competent authorities. He then took Villefort's arm 
and at the same time holding that of Madame d'Anglars under his own, he dragged the procureur to the plantain tree, where the shade was thickest. All the other guests followed. Stay, said Monte Cristo, here in this very spot, and he stamped upon the ground. I had the earth dug up and fresh mould put in to refresh these old trees. Well, my man digging found a box, or rather the ironwork of a box, in the midst of which was the skeleton of a newly-born infant. Monte Cristo felt the arm of Madame d'Anglars stiffen, while that of Villefort trembled. A newly-born infant, repeated Debray. This affair becomes serious. Well, said Chateau Renaud, I was not wrong just now, then, when I said that houses had souls and faces like men, and that their exteriors carried the impress of their characters. This house was gloomy because it was remorseful. It was remorseful because it concealed a crime. Who said it was a crime? asked Villefort with a last effort. How? Is it not a crime to bury a living child in a garden? cried Monte Cristo. And pray, what do you call such an action? But who said it was buried alive? Why bury it there if it were dead? This garden has never been a cemetery. What is done to infanticides in this country? asked Major Cavalcanti innocently. Oh, their heads are soon cut off, said Donglar. Ah, indeed, said Cavalcanti. I think so. Am I not right, Monsieur de Villefort? asked Monte Cristo. Yes, Count, replied Villefort, in a voice now scarcely human. Monte Cristo, seeing that the two persons for whom he had prepared this scene could scarcely endure it, and not wishing to carry it too far, said, Come, gentlemen, some coffee. We seem to have forgotten it. And he conducted the guests back to the table on the lawn. Indeed, Count, said Madame Danglars, I am ashamed to own it, but all your frightful stories have so upset me that I must beg you to let me sit down. And she fell into a chair. Monte Cristo bowed and went to Madame de Villefort. I think Madame Danglars again requires your bottle, he said. But before Madame de Villefort could reach her friend, the procureur had found time to whisper to Madame Danglars, I must speak to you. When? Tomorrow. Where? In my office, or in the court, if you like. That is the surest place. I will be there. At this moment, Madame de Villefort approached. Thanks, my dear friend, said Madame Danglars, trying to smile. It is over now, and I am much better. End of chapter 63 Chapter 64 of The Count of Monte Cristo by Alexandre Dumas This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter 64 The Beggar The evening passed on. Madame de Villefort expressed a desire to return to Paris, which Madame d'Anglars had not dared to do, 
notwithstanding the uneasiness she experienced. On his wife's request, Monsieur de Villefort was the first to give the signal of departure. He offered a seat in his landau to Madame Donglars that she might be under the care of his wife. As for Monsieur Donglars, absorbed in an interesting conversation with Monsieur Cavalcanti, he paid no attention to anything that was passing. While Monte Cristo had begged the smelling bottle of Madame de Villefort, he had noticed the approach of Villefort to Madame Danglars, and he soon guessed all that had passed between them, though the words had been uttered in so low a voice as hardly to be heard by Madame Danglars. Without opposing their arrangements, he allowed Morel, Chateau Renaud, and Debray to leave on horseback, and the ladies in Monsieur de Villefort's carriage. Danglars, more and more delighted with Major Cavalcanti, had offered him a seat in his carriage. Andrea Cavalcanti found his tilbury waiting at the door. The groom, in every respect a caricature of the English fashion, was standing on tiptoe to hold a large iron-grey horse. Andrea had spoken very little during the dinner. He was an intelligent lad, and he feared to utter some absurdity before so many grand people, amongst whom, with dilating eyes, he saw the king's attorney. Then he had been seized upon by Danglars, who, with a rapid glance at the stiff-necked old major and his modest son, and taking into consideration the hospitality of the count, made up his mind that he was in the society of some nabob come to Paris to finish the worldly education of his heir. He contemplated with unspeakable delight the large diamond which shone on the major's little finger. For the major, like a prudent man, in case of any accident happening to his banknotes, had immediately converted them into an available asset. Then, after dinner, on the pretext of business, he questioned the father and son upon their mode of living, and the father and son previously informed that it was through Donglars, the one was to receive his 48,000 francs, and the other 50,000 livres annually, were so full of affability that they would have shaken hands even with the banker's servants. So much did their gratitude need an object to expend itself upon. One thing, above all the rest, heightened the respect, nay, almost the veneration of Danglars for Cavalcanti. The latter, faithful to the principle of Horace, nil admirari, had contented himself with showing his knowledge by declaring in what lake the best lampreys were caught. Then he had eaten some without saying a word more. Danglars, therefore, concluded that such luxuries were common at the table of the illustrious descendant of the Cavalcanti, who most likely in Lucca fed upon trout brought from Switzerland, and lobsters sent from England by the same means used by the Count to bring the lampreys from Lake Fusaro and the Stelet from the Volga. Thus it was, with much politeness of manner, that he heard Cavalcanti pronounce these words. "'Tomorrow, sir,' I shall have the honour of waiting upon you on business. And I, sir, said Danglars, shall be most happy to receive you. Upon which he offered to take Cavalcanti in his carriage to the Hôtel des Princes, if it would not be depriving him of the company of his son. To this Cavalcanti replied by saying that for some time past his son had lived independently of him, that he had his own horses and carriages, and that not having come together, it would not be difficult for them to leave separately. 
the Major seated himself, therefore, by the side of Donglar, who was more and more charmed with the ideas of order and economy which ruled this man, and yet who, being able to allow his son 60,000 francs a year, might be supposed to possess a fortune of 500,000 or 600,000 livres. As for Andrea, he began by way of showing off to scold his groom, who, instead of bringing the tilbury to the steps of the house, had taken it to the outer door, thus giving him the trouble of walking thirty steps to reach it. The groom heard him with humility, took the bit of the impatient animal with his left hand, and with the right held out the reins to Andrea, who, taking them from him, rested his polished boot lightly on the step. At that moment, a hand touched his shoulder. The young man turned round, thinking that Donglars, or Monte Cristo, had forgotten something they wished to tell him, and had returned just as they were starting. But instead of either of these, he saw nothing but a strange face, sunburnt and encircled by a beard, with eyes brilliant as carbuncles, and a smile upon the mouth which displayed a perfect set of white teeth, pointed and sharp as the wolf's or jackal's. A red handkerchief encircled his grey head, torn and filthy garments covered his large bony limbs, which seemed as though, like those of a skeleton, they would rattle as he walked. And the hand with which he leaned upon the young man's shoulder, and which was the first thing Andrea saw, seemed of gigantic size. Did the young man recognise that face by the light of the lantern in his tilbury? Or was he merely struck with the horrible appearance of his interrogator? We cannot say but only relate the fact that he shuddered and stepped back suddenly. "'What do you want of me?' he asked. "'Pardon me, my friend, if I disturb you,' said the man with the red handkerchief. "'But I want to speak to you.' "'You have no right to beg at night,' said the groom, endeavouring to rid his master of the troublesome intruder. "'I am not begging, my fine fellow,' said the unknown to the servant, with so ironical an expression of the eye, and so frightful a smile that he withdrew. "'I only wish to say two or three words to your master, who gave me a commission to execute about a fortnight ago.' "'Come,' said Andrea, with sufficient nerve for his servant not to perceive his agitation. "'What do you want? Speak quickly, friend.' The man said in a low voice, "'I wish—' I wish you to spare me the walk back to Paris. I am very tired, and as I have not eaten so good a dinner as you, I can scarcely stand. The young man shuddered at this strange familiarity. Tell me, he said, tell me what you want. Well then, I want you to take me up in your fine carriage and carry me back. Andrea turned pale but said nothing. Yes said the man, thrusting his hands into his pockets and looking impudently at the youth. I have taken the whim into my head. Do you understand, Master Benedetto? At this name, no doubt, the young man reflected a little, for he went towards his groom, saying, This man is right. I did indeed charge him with a commission, the result of which he must tell me. Walk to the barrier there, take a cab, that you may not be too late. The surprised groom retired. Let 
me at least reach a shady spot, said Andrea. Oh, as for that, I'll take you to a splendid place, said the man with the handkerchief, and taking the horse's bit, he led the Tilbury where it was certainly impossible for anyone to witness the honour that Andrea conferred upon him. Don't think I want the glory of riding in your fine carriage, said he. Oh no, it's only because I am tired, and also because I have a little business to talk over with you. Come, step in, said the young man. It was a pity this scene had not occurred in daylight, for it was curious to see this rascal throwing himself heavily down on the cushion beside the young and elegant driver of the Tilbury. Andrea drove past the last house in the village without saying a word to his companion, who smiled complacently, as though well pleased to find himself travelling in so comfortable a vehicle. Once out of Auteuil, Andrea looked around in order to assure himself that he could neither be seen nor heard, and then, stopping the horse and crossing his arms before the man, he asked, "'Now, tell me why you come to disturb my tranquillity.' Let me ask you, why you deceived me? How have I deceived you? How, do you ask? When we parted at the Pont du Var, you told me you were going to travel through Piedmont and Tuscany. But instead of that, you come to Paris. How does that annoy you? It does not. On the contrary, I think it will answer my purpose. So, said Andrea. You are speculating upon me? What fine words he uses. I warn you, Master Calarus, that you are mistaken. Well, well, don't be angry, my boy. You know well enough what it is to be unfortunate, and misfortunes make us jealous. I thought you were earning a living in Tuscany or Piedmont by acting as Facino or Cicerone, and I pitied you sincerely as I would a child of my own. You know I always did call you my child. Come, come, what then? Patience, patience. I am patient, but go on. All at once, I see you pass through the barrier with a groom, a tilbury, and fine new clothes. You must have discovered a mine, or else become a stockbroker. So that, as you confess, you are jealous. No, I am pleased. So pleased that I wished to congratulate you. But as I am not quite properly dressed, I chose my opportunity that I might not compromise you. Yes, and a fine opportunity you have chosen, exclaimed Andrea. You speak to me before my servant. How can I help that, my boy? I speak to you when I can catch you. You have a quick horse, a light tilbury. You are naturally as slippery as an eel. If I had missed you tonight, I might not have had another chance. You see, I do not conceal myself. You are lucky. I wish I could say as much, for I do conceal myself. And then I was afraid you would not recognize me, but you did added Caderousse with his unpleasant smile. It was very polite of you. Come, said Andrea, what do you want? 
You do not speak affectionately to me, Benedetto, my old friend. That is not right. Take care, or I may become troublesome. This menace smothered the young man's passion. He urged the horse again into a trot. You should not speak so to an old friend like me, Caderousse. As you said just now, you are a native of Marseille. I am... Do you know, then, now what you are? No, but I was brought up in Corsica. You are old and obstinate. I am young and willful. Between people like us, threats are out of place. Everything should be amicably arranged. Is it my fault if fortune which has frowned on you has been kind to me? Fortune has been kind to you then. Your tilbury, your groom, your clothes are not then hired. Good. So much the better, said Caderousse, his eyes sparkling with avarice. Oh, you well know that well enough before speaking to me, said Andrea, becoming more and more excited. If I had been wearing a handkerchief like yours on my head, rags on my back and worn-out shoes on my feet, you would not have known me. You wrong me, my boy. Now I have found you. Nothing prevents my being as well dressed as any one, knowing as I do the goodness of your heart. If you have two coats, you will give me one of them. I used to divide my soup and beans with you when you were hungry. True, said Andrea. What an appetite you used to have. Is it as good now? Oh, yes, replied Andrea, laughing. How did you come to be dining with that prince whose house you have just left? He is not a prince, simply a count. A count? And a rich one too, eh? Yes, but you had better not have anything to say to him, for he is not a very good-tempered gentleman. Oh, be easy. I have no design upon your count, and you shall have him all to yourself, but, said Caderousse, again smiling, with a disagreeable expression he had before assumed, you must pay for it, you understand? Well, what do you want? I think that with uh, a hundred francs a month, well, I could live. Upon a hundred francs? Come, you understand me, but that with... With? With a hundred and fifty francs, I could be quite happy. Here are two hundred, said Andrea, and he placed ten gold louis in the hand of Caderousse. Good said Caderousse. Apply to the steward on the first day of every month, and you will receive the same sum. There now, again you degrade me. How so? By making me apply to your servants, when I want to transact business with you alone. Well, be it so, then. Take it from me, then. And so long, at least, as I receive my income, you shall be paid yours. Come, come. I always said you were a fine fellow, and it is a blessing when good fortune happens to such as you. But tell me all about it. Why do you wish to know? asked Cavalcanti. What? Do you again defy me? No, the fact is I have found my father. What? A real father? Yes, so long as he pays me.
You'll honor and believe him? That's right. What is his name? Major Cavalcanti. Is he pleased with you? So far I have appeared to answer his purpose. And who found his father for you? The Count of Monte Cristo. The man whose house you have just left? Yes. I wish you would try and find me a situation with him as grandfather, since he holds the money chest. Well, I will mention you to him. Meanwhile, what are you going to do? I? Yes, you. It is very kind of you to trouble yourself about me. Since you interest yourself in my affairs, I think it is now my turn to ask you some questions. Ah, true. Well, I shall rent a room in some respectable house, wear a decent coat, shave every day and go and read the papers in a cafe. Then in the evening I shall go to the theatre. I shall look like uh, some retired baker. That is what I want. Come, if you will only put the scheme into execution, and be steady, nothing could be better. Do you think so, Monsieur Boussouet? And you, what will you become? A peer of France? Ah, said Andrea, who knows? Major Cavalcanti is already one, perhaps, but then hereditary rank is abolished. No politics, Caderousse. And now that you have all you want, and that we understand each other, jump down from the Tilbury and disappear. Not at all, my good friend. How? Not at all. Why, just think for a moment. With this red handkerchief on my head, with scarcely any shoes, no papers, and ten gold Napoleons in my pocket, without reckoning what was there before, making in all about two hundred francs, why I should certainly be arrested at the barrier. Then, to justify myself, I should say that you gave me the money. This would cause inquiries. It would be found out that I left too long without giving due notice, and I should then be escorted back to the shores of the Mediterranean. Then I should become simply numero 106, and goodbye to my dream of resembling the retired baker. No, no, my boy. I prefer remaining honorably in the capital. Andreas scowled. Certainly, as he had himself owned, the reputed son of Major Cavalcanti was a willful fellow. He drew up for a minute, threw a rapid glance around him, and then his hand fell instantly into his pocket, where it began playing with a pistol. But, meanwhile, Caderousse, who had never taken his eyes off his companion, passed his hand behind his back and opened a long Spanish knife, which he always carried with him, to be ready in case of need. The two friends, as we see, were worthy of and understood each other. Andrea's hand left his pocket inoffensively and was carried up to the red moustache, which it played with for some time. "'Good Caderousse,' he said. "'How happy you will be!' "'I will do my best.' said the innkeeper of the Pont du Gard, shutting up his knife. Well, then, we will go into Paris. But how will you pass through the barrier without exciting suspicion? It seems to me that you are in more danger riding than on foot. Wait, said Caderousse. We shall see. 
He then took the great coat with the large collar which the groom had left behind in the Tilbury and put it on his back. Then he took off Calvacanti's hat, which he placed upon his own head, and finally he assumed the careless attitude of a servant whose master drives himself. But tell me, said Andrea, am I to remain bareheaded? Bah, said Calarus, it is so windy that your hat can easily appear to have blown off. Come, come, enough of this, said Cavalcanti. What are you waiting for, said Cadarus. I hope I am not the cause. Hush, said Andrea. They passed the barrier without accident. At the first cross street, Andrea stopped his horse, and Cadarus leapt out. Well, said Andrea, my servant's coat and my hat. Ah, said Cadarus, you would not like me to risk taking cold. But what am I to do? You? Oh, you are young, while well, I am beginning to get old. Au revoir, Benedetto. And running into a court, he disappeared. Alas, said Andrea, sighing, one cannot be completely happy in this world. End of chapter 64 Chapter 65 of The Count of Monte Cristo by Alexandre Dumas. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter 65 A Conjugal Scene. At the Place Louis XV, the three young people separated. That is to say, Morel went to the boulevard, Chateau Renaud to the Pont de la Revolution, and Debray to the Quai. Most probably Morel and Chateau Renaud returned to their domestic hearths, as they say in the gallery of the chamber, in well-turned speeches, and in the theatre of the Rue Richelieu, in well-written pieces. But it was not the case with Debray. When he reached the wicket of the Louvre, he turned to the left, galloped across the carousel, passed through the Rue Saint-Roche, and, issuing from the Rue de la Michaudière, he arrived at Monsieur Danglars' door, just at the same time that Villefort's Landau, after having deposited him and his wife at the Faubourg Saint-Honoré, stopped to leave the baroness at her own house. Debray, with the air of a man familiar with the house, entered first into the court, threw his bridle into the hands of a footman, and returned to the door to receive Madame Donglars, to whom he offered his arm to conduct her to her apartments. The gate once closed, and Debray and the baroness alone in the court, he asked, "'What was the matter with you, Hermine? "'And why were you so affected at that story, "'or rather fable, which the Count related?' "'Because I have been in such shocking spirits "'all the evening, my friend,' said the Baroness. "'No, Hermine,' replied Dubray. "'You cannot make me believe that. "'On the contrary, you were in excellent spirits "'when you arrived at the Count's. "'Monsieur Danglars was disagreeable, certainly,' But I know how much you care for this ill-humour. Someone has vexed you. I will allow no one to annoy you. You are deceived, Lucien, I assure you, replied Madame Donglars. And what I have told you is really the case, added to the ill-humour you remarked, but which I did not think it worth while to allude to. It was evident that Madame Donglars was suffering from that nervous irritability which women frequently cannot account for even to themselves. 
or that, as de Bray had guessed, she had experienced some secret agitation that she would not acknowledge to anyone. Being a man who knew that the former of these symptoms was one of the inherent penalties of womanhood, he did not then press his inquiries, but waited for a more appropriate opportunity, when he should again interrogate her, or receive an avowal proprio motu. At the door of her apartment, the baroness met Mademoiselle Cornelie, her confidential maid. "'What is my daughter doing?' asked Madame Donglars. "'She practised all the evening, and then went to bed,' replied Mademoiselle Cornelie. "'Yet I think I hear her piano. "'It is Mademoiselle Louise d'Armilly who is playing, while Mademoiselle Donglars is in bed.' "'Well,' said Madame Donglars, "'come and undress me.' They entered the bedroom. Debray stretched himself upon a large couch, and Madame Donglars passed her into her dressing-room with Mademoiselle Cornerly. "'My dear Monsieur Lucien,' said Madame Donglars through the door, "'you are always complaining that Eugenie will not address a word to you.' "'Madame,' said Lucien, playing with a little dog, who recognised him as a friend of the house, expected to be caressed, "'I am not the only one who makes similar complaints.' I think I heard Morcerf say that he could not extract a word from his betrothed. True, said Madame Donglars, yet I think this will all pass off, and that you will one day see her enter your study. My study? At least that of the minister. Why so? To ask for an engagement at the opera. Really, I never saw such an infatuation for music. It is quite ridiculous for a young lady of fashion. Debray smiled. Well, said he, let her come with your consent and that of the baron, and we will try and give her an engagement, though we are very poor to pay such talent as hers. Go, Cornelie, said Madame Donglars. I do not require you any longer. Cornelie obeyed, and the next minute Madame Donglars left her room in a charming loose dress, and came and sat down close to Debray. Then she began thoughtfully to caress the little spaniel. Lucien looked at her for a moment in silence. "'Come, Hermine,' he said. After a short time, "'Answer candidly. Something vexes you. Is it not so?' "'Nothing,' answered the baroness. And yet, as she could scarcely breathe, she rose and went towards a looking-glass. "'I am frightful to-night,' she said. Debray rose, smiling, and was about to contradict the baroness upon this latter point, when the door opened suddenly. Monsieur Donglars appeared. Debray reseated himself. At the noise of the door, Madame Donglars turned around and looked upon her husband with an astonishment. She took no trouble to conceal. "'Good evening, madame,' said the banker. "'Good evening, Monsieur Debray.' Probably the baroness thought this unexpected visit signified a desire to make up for the sharp words he had uttered during the day. Assuming a dignified air, she turned round to Debray, without answering her husband. "'Read me something, Monsieur Debray,' she said. Debray, who was slightly disturbed at this visit, recovered himself when he saw the calmness of the baroness, and took up a book marked by a mother-of-pearl knife inlaid with gold. "'Excuse me,' said the banker. But you will tire yourself, Baroness, by such late hours. 
and Monsieur de Bray lives some distance from here. De Bray was petrified, not only to hear Danglars speak so calmly and politely, but because it was apparent that beneath outward politeness there really lurked a determined spirit of opposition to anything his wife might wish to do. The Baroness was also surprised, and showed her astonishment by a look which would doubtless have had some effect upon her husband, if he had not been intently occupied with the paper, where he was looking to see the closing stock quotations. The result was that the proud look entirely failed of its purpose. Monsieur Lucien, said the Baroness, I assure you, I have no desire to sleep, and that I have a thousand things to tell you this evening, which you must listen to even though you slept while hearing me. I am at your service, madame, replied Lucien coldly. My dear Monsieur Debray, said the banker, do not kill yourself tonight, listening to the follies of Madame Danglars, for you can hear them as well tomorrow. But I claim tonight, and will devote it, if you will allow me, to talk over some serious matters with my wife. This time the blow was so well aimed, and hit so directly, that Lucien and the Baroness were staggered and they interrogated each other with their eyes, as if to seek help against his aggression. But the irresistible will of the master of the house prevailed, and the husband was victorious. "'Do not think I wish to turn you out, my dear Debray,' continued Danglars. "'Oh, no, not at all. An unexpected occurrence forces me to ask my wife to have a little conversation with me, it is so rarely I make such a request. I am sure you cannot grudge it to me. Debray muttered something, bowed, and went out, knocking himself against the edge of the door, like Nathan in Athalie. It is extraordinary, he said when the door was closed behind him, how easily these husbands, whom we ridicule, gain an advantage over us. Lucien, having left, Danglars took his place on the sofa, closed the open book, and placing himself in a dreadfully dictatorial attitude, he began playing with the dog, but the animal not liking him as well as de Bray, and attempting to bite him. Danglars seized him by the skin of his neck and threw him upon a couch on the other side of the room. The animal uttered a cry during the transit, but arrived at its destination. It crouched behind the cushions and, stupefied at such unusual treatment, remained silent and motionless. "'Do you know, sir,' asked the baroness, "'that you are improving? Generally you are only rude, but to-night you are brutal.' "'It is because I am in a worse humour than usual,' replied Danglars. Hermine looked at the banker with supreme disdain. These glances frequently exasperated the pride of Danglars, but this evening... He took no notice of them. "'And what have I to do with your ill-humour?' said the Marioness, irritated at the impassibility of her husband. "'Do these things concern me? Keep your ill-humour at home in your money-boxes, or, since you have clerks whom you pay, vent it upon them.' "'Not so,' replied Danglars. "'Your advice is wrong, so I shall not follow it. My money-boxes are my patron. Loss, as I think Monsieur de Moustier says, 
and I will not retard its course, or disturb its calm. My clerks are honest men, who earn my fortune, my pay much below their deserts, if I may value them according to what they bring in. Therefore I shall not get into a passion with them, those with whom I will be in a passion, are those who eat my dinners, mount my horses, and exhaust my fortune. And pray, who are the persons who exhaust your fortune? Explain yourself more clearly, I beg, sir. Oh, make yourself easy. I am not speaking riddles, and you will soon know what I mean. The people who exhaust my fortune are those who draw out seven hundred thousand francs in the course of an hour. I do not understand you, sir, said the baroness, trying to disguise the agitation of her voice and the flush of her face. You understand me perfectly, on the contrary, said Danglars. But if ye will persist, I will tell you that I have just lost seven hundred thousand francs upon the Spanish loan. And pray, asked the baroness, am I responsible for this loss? Why not? Is it my fault you have lost seven hundred thousand francs? Certainly it is not mine. Once for all, sir, replied the baroness sharply. I tell you I will not hear cash named. It is a style of language I never heard in the house of my parents or in that of my first husband. Oh, I can well believe that, for neither of them was worth a penny. The better reason for my not being conversant with the slang of the bank, which is here dinning in my ears from morning to night, that noise of jingling crowns which are constantly being counted and recounted is odious to me. I only know one thing I dislike more, which is the sound of your voice. Really, said Danglars, well, this surprises me, for I thought you took the liveliest interest in all my affairs. Why, what could put such an idea into your head? Yourself? Ah, what next? Most assuredly. I should like to know upon what occasion. Oh, mon Dieu, that is very easily done. Last February you were the first who told me of the Haitian funds. You had dreamed that a ship had entered the harbour at Havre, that this ship brought news that a payment we had looked upon as lost was going to be made. I know how clear-sighted your dreams are. I therefore purchased immediately as many shares as I could of the Haitian debt, and I gained four hundred thousand francs by it, of which one hundred thousand have been honestly paid to you. You spent it as you pleased. That was your business. In March there was a question about a grant to a railway. Three companies presented themselves, each offering equal securities. You told me that your instinct, and although you pretend to know nothing about speculations, I think on the contrary that your comprehension is very clear upon certain affairs. Well, you told me that your instinct led you to believe the grant would be given to the company called the Southern. I bought two-thirds of the shares of that company, as you had foreseen, 
the shares trebled in value and I picked up a million, from which 250,000 francs were paid to you for pin money. How have you spent this 250,000 francs? It is no business of mine. When are you coming to the point? cried the baroness, shivering with anger and impatience. Patience, madame, I am coming to it. That's fortunate. In April you went to dine at the minister's. You had a private conversation respecting Spanish affairs and the expulsion of Don Carlos. I bought some Spanish shares. The expulsion took place and I pocketed 600,000 francs the day Charles V repassed the Bidarsoa. Of those 600,000 francs, you took 50,000 crowns. They were yours. You disposed of them according to your fancy, and I ask no questions. But it is not the less true that you have this year received 500,000 livres. Well, sir, and what then? Ah, yes, it was just after this that you spoiled everything. Really? Your manner of speaking... It expresses my meaning, and that is all I want. Well, three days after that you talked politics with Monsieur de Bray, and you fancied from his words that Don Carlos had returned to Spain. Well, I sold my shares. The news got out, and I no longer sold. I gave them away. Next day I find the news was false, and by this false report I have lost 700,000 francs. Well? Well, since I gave you a fourth of my gains, I think you owe me a fourth of my losses. The fourth of 700,000 francs is 175,000 francs. What you say is absurd, and I cannot see why Monsieur Dupre's name is mixed up in this affair. Because, if you do not possess the 175,000 francs I reclaim, you must have lent them to your friends, and Monsieur Dupre is one of your friends. For shame! exclaimed the baroness. Oh, let us have no gestures, no screams, no modern drama, or you will oblige me to tell you that I see Dobre leave here, pocketing the whole of the 500,000 livres you have handed over to him this year, while he smiles to himself, saying that he has found what the most skilful players have never discovered, that is, a roulette where he wins without playing, and is no loser when he loses. The baroness became enraged. Wretch, she cried, will you dare to tell me you did not know what you now reproach me with? I do not say that I did know it, and I do not say that I did not know it. I merely tell you to look into my conduct during the last four years that we have ceased to be husband and wife, and see whether it has not always been consistent. Some time after our rupture, you wish to study music under the celebrated baritone who made such a successful appearance at the Theatre Italien. At the same time, 
I felt inclined to learn dancing of the dancers who acquired such a reputation in London. This cost me, on your account and mine, one hundred thousand francs. I said nothing, for we must have peace in the house, and one hundred thousand francs for a lady and gentleman to be properly instructed in music and dancing are not too much. Well, you soon became tired of singing, and you take a fancy to study diplomacy with the minister's secretary. You understand, it signifies nothing to me so long as you pay for your lessons out of your own cash-box. But today I find you are drawing on mine, and that your apprenticeship may cost me seven hundred thousand francs per month. Stop there, madame, for this cannot last. Either the diplomatist must give his lessons gratis, and I will tolerate him, or he must never set his foot again in my house. Do you understand, madame? Oh, this is too much, cried Amine, choking. You are worse than despicable. But, continued Danglars, I find you did not even pause there. Insults! You are right. Let us leave these facts alone and reason coolly. I have never interfered in your affairs, excepting for your good. Treat me in the same way. You say you have nothing to do with my cash-box. Be it so. Do as you like with your own, but do not fill or empty mine. Besides, how do I know that this was not a political trick, that the minister enraged at seeing me in the opposition and jealous of the popular sympathy I excite, has not concerted with Monsieur de Bray to ruin me. A probable thing. Why not? Who ever heard of such an occurrence as this? A false telegraphic dispatch. It is almost impossible for wrong signals to be made as they were in the last two telegrams. It was done on purpose for me. I am sure of it. Sir, said the baroness humbly, are you not aware that the man employed there was dismissed? That they talked of going to law with him? That orders were issued to arrest him, and that this order would have been put into execution if he had not escaped by flight? Which proves that he is either mad or guilty. It was a mistake. Yes, which made fools laugh which caused the minister to have a sleepless night, which has caused the minister's secretaries to blacken several sheets of paper, by which has cost me seven hundred thousand francs. But, sir, said Amine suddenly, if all this is, as you say, caused by Monsieur Dobray, why, instead of going direct to him, do you come and tell me of it? Why, to accuse the man, do you address the woman? Do I know Monsieur de Bray? Do I wish to know him? Do I wish to know that he gives advice? Do I wish to follow it? Do I speculate? No. You do all this, not I. Still, it seems to me that as you profit by it... Donglar 
shrugged his shoulders. Foolish creature, he exclaimed. Women fancy they have talent because they have managed two or three intrigues without being the talk of Paris. But know that if you had even hidden your irregularities from your husband, who has but the commencement of the art, for generally husbands will not see, you would then have been but a faint imitation of most of your friends among the women of the world. But it has not been so with me. I see, and always have seen, during the last sixteen years, you may perhaps have hidden a thought, but not a step, not an action, not a fault has escaped me. While you flattered yourself upon your address and firmly believed you had deceived me, what has been the result? That, thanks to my pretended ignorance, there is none of your friends, from Monsieur de Villefort to Monsieur de Bray, who has not trembled before me. There is not one who has not treated me as the master of the house, the only title I desire with respect to you. There is not one, in fact, who would have dared to speak of me as I have spoken of them this day. I will allow you to make me hateful, but I will prevent you rendering me ridiculous, and above all, I forbid you to ruin me. The Baroness had been tolerably composed until the name of Villefort had been pronounced. But then she became pale, and rising as if touched by a spring, she stretched out her hands as though conjuring an apparition. She then took two or three steps towards her husband, as though to tear the secret from him, of which he was ignorant, or which he withheld from some odious calculation, odious as all his calculations were. Monsieur de Villefort, what do you mean? I mean that Monsieur de Nargonne, your first husband, being neither a philosopher nor a banker, or perhaps being both and seeing there was nothing to be got out of a king's attorney, died of grief or anger at finding, after an absence of nine months, that you had been enceinte cease. I am brutal. I not only allow it, but boast of it. It is one of the reasons of my success in commercial business. Why did he kill himself instead of you? Because he had no cash to save. My life belongs to my cash. Monsieur Dobray has made me lose 700,000 francs. Let him bear his share of the loss, and we will go on as before. If not, let him become bankrupt for the 250,000 livres, and do as all bankrupts do, disappear. He is a charming fellow, I allow, when his news is correct. But when it is not, there are fifty others in the world who would do better than he. Madame Danglars was rooted to the spot. She made a violent effort to reply to this last attack, but she fell upon a chair, thinking of Villefort, of the dinner scene, of the strange series of misfortunes which had taken place in her house during the last few days, and changed the usual calm of her establishment to a scene of scandalous debate. 
Danglars did not even look at her, though she did her best to faint. He shut the bedroom door after him, without adding another word, and returned to his apartments. And when Madame Danglars recovered from her half-fainting condition, she could almost believe that she had had a disagreeable dream. End of chapter 65「Chapter 66 of the Count of Monte Cristo by Alexandre Dumas. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter 66. Matrimonial Projects. The day following this scene, at the hour the banker usually chose to pay a visit to Madame Danglars on his way to his office, his coupe did not appear. At this time, that is, about half-past twelve, Madame Danglars ordered her carriage and went out. Danglars, hidden behind a curtain, watched the departure he had been waiting for. He gave orders that he should be informed as soon as Madame Danglars appeared. But at two o'clock she had not returned. He then called for his horses, drove to the chamber, and inscribed his name to speak against the budget. From twelve to two o'clock, Danglars had remained in his study, unsealing his dispatches and becoming more and more sad every minute, heaping figure upon figure, and receiving, among other visits, one from Major Cavalcanti, who, as stiff and exact as ever, presented himself precisely at the hour named the night before, to terminate his business with the banker. On leaving the chamber, Danglars, who had shown violent marks of agitation during the sitting, and been more bitter than ever against the ministry, re-entered his carriage, and told the coachman to drive to the Avenue des Champs-Élysées, numéro 30. Monte Cristo was at home. Only he was engaged with someone and begged Danglars to wait for a moment in the drawing-room. While the banker was waiting in the ante-room, the door opened, and a man dressed as an abbé, and doubtless more familiar with the house than he was, came in and, instead of waiting, merely bowed, passed on to the farther apartments, and disappeared. A minute after the door by which the priest had entered reopened, and Monte Cristo appeared, Pardon me, said he, my dear Baron, but one of my friends, the Abbe Bussoni, whom you perhaps saw passed by, has just arrived in Paris. Not having seen him for a long time, I could not make up my mind to leave him sooner, so I hope this will be sufficient reason for my having made you wait. Nay, said Danglars, it is my fault. I have chosen a visit at a wrong time, and will retire. Not at all. On the contrary, be seated. But what is the matter with you? You look careworn. Really, you alarm me. A melancholy in a capitalist, like the appearance of a comet, presages some misfortune to the world. I have been in ill luck for several days, said Danglars, and I have heard nothing but bad news. Ah, indeed, said Monte Cristo. Have you had another fall at the bourse? No. I am safe for a few days at least. I am only annoyed about a bankrupt of Trieste. 
Really? Does it happen to be Jacopo Manfredi? Exactly so. Imagine a man who has transacted business with me for I don't know how long to the amount of 800,000 or 900,000 francs during the year. Never a mistake or delay. A fellow who paid like a prince. Well, I was a million in advance with him, and now my fine Jacopo Manfredi suspends a payment. Really? It is an unheard of fatality. I draw upon him for 600,000 francs. My bills are returned unpaid, and more than that, I hold bills of exchange signed by him to the value of 400,000 francs payable at his correspondence in Paris at the end of this month. Today is the 30th. I present them, but my correspondent has disappeared. This, with my Spanish affair, made a pretty end to the month. Then you really lost by that affair in Spain? Yes, only 700,000 francs out of my cash box, nothing more. Why, how could you have made such a mistake? Such an old stager? Oh, it is all my wife's fault. She dreamed Don Carlos had returned to Spain. She believes in dreams. It is magnetism, she says, and when she dreams a thing, it is sure to happen, she assures me. On this conviction, I allow her to speculate. She having her bank and her stockbroker, she speculated and lost. It is true she speculates with her own money, not mine. Nevertheless, you can understand that when 700,000 francs leave the wife's pocket, the husband always finds it out. But do you mean to say you have not heard of this? Why, the thing has made a tremendous noise. Yes, I heard of it spoken, but I did not know the details, and then no one can be more ignorant than I am of the affairs in the bourse. Then you do not speculate? I? How could I speculate when I already have so much trouble in regulating my income? I should be obliged, beside my steward, to keep a clerk and a boy. But touching these Spanish affairs, I think that the Baroness did not dream the whole of the Don Carlos matter. The papers said something about it, did they not? Then uh, you believe the papers? I? Not the least in the world. Only I fancied that the honest messager was an exception to a rule, and that it only announced telegraphic dispatches. Well, that's what puzzles me, replied Danglars. The news of the return of Don Carlos was brought by telegraph. So that, said Monte Cristo, you have lost nearly one million seven hundred thousand francs this month. Not nearly, indeed. That is exactly my loss. Diable, said Monte Cristo compassionately. It is a hard blow for a third-rate fortune. Third-rate, 
said Danglars, rather humble. What do you mean by that? Certainly, continued Monte Cristo. I make three assortments in fortune. First-rate, second-rate, and third-rate fortunes. I call those first-rate, which are composed of treasures one possesses under one's hand, such as mines, lands, and funded property, in such states as France, Austria, and England, provided these treasures and property form a total of about a hundred millions. I call those second-rate fortunes that are gained by manufacturing enterprises, joint stock companies, vice royalties and principalities, not drawing more than one million five hundred thousand francs, the whole forming a capital of about fifty millions. Finally, I call those third-rate fortunes, which are composed of a fluctuating capital, dependent upon the will of others, or upon chances which a bankruptcy involves or a false telegram shakes, such as banks, speculations of the day, in fact, all operations under the influence of greater or less mischances, the whole bringing in a real or fictitious capital of about fifteen millions. I think this is about your position, is it not? Confound it, yes, replied Danglars. The result, then, of six more such months as this would be to reduce the third-rate house to despair. Oh, said Danglars, becoming very pale, how you are running on. Let us imagine seven such months, continued Monte Cristo in the same tone. Tell me, have you ever thought that seven times one million seven hundred thousand francs make nearly twelve millions. No, you have not. Well, you are right, for if you indulge in such reflections, you would never risk your principle, which is to the speculator what the skin is to civilized man. We have our clothes, some more splendid than others. This is our credit. But when a man dies, he has only his skin. In the same way, on retiring from business, you have nothing but your real principal of about five or six millions, at the most. For third-rate fortunes are never more than a fourth of what they appear to be, like the locomotive on a railway, the size of which is magnified by the smoke and steam surrounding it. Well, out of the five or six millions which form your real capital, you have just lost nearly two millions which must, of course, in the same degree, diminish your credit and fictitious fortune to follow out my simile. Your skin has been opened by bleeding, and this, if repeated three or four times, will cause death. So pay attention to it, my dear Monsieur Danglars. Do you want money? Do you wish me to lend you some? What a bad calculator you are! exclaimed Danglars, calling to his assistance all his philosophy and dissimulation. I have made money at the same time by speculations which have succeeded. I have made up the loss of blood by nutrition. I lost a battle in Spain. I have been defeated in Trieste, but my naval army in India will have taken some galleons and my Mexican pioneers 
will have discovered some mine. Very good, very good. But the wound remains and will reopen at the first loss. No, for I am only embarked in certainties, replied Danglars, with the air of a mountebank sounding his own praises. To involve me, three governments must crumble to dust. Well, such things have been. That there should be a famine. Recollect the seven fat and the seven lean kine. Or that the sea should become dry as in the days of Pharaoh, and even then my vessels would become caravans. So much the better. I congratulate you, my dear Monsieur Danglars, said Monte Cristo. I see I was deceived, and that you belong to the class of second-rate fortunes. I think I may aspire to that honour, said Danglars with a smile, which reminded Monte Cristo of the sickly moons which bad artists are so fond of daubing into their pictures of ruins. But while we are speaking of business, Danglars added, pleased to find an opportunity of changing the subject, tell me what I am to do for Monsieur Cavalcanti. Give him money. If he is recommended to you, and the recommendation seems good. Excellent. He presented himself this morning with a bond of 40,000 francs, payable at sight on you, signed by Boussoni, and returned by you to me, with your endorsement, of course. I immediately counted him over the forty banknotes. Monte Cristo nodded his head in token of assent. But that is not all, continued Danglars. He has opened an account with my house for his son. May I ask how much he allows the young man? Uh, five thousand francs per month. Sixty thousand francs per year. I thought I was right in believing that Cavalcanti to be a stingy fellow. How can a young man live upon five thousand francs a month? But you understand that if the young man should want a few thousand more, do not advance it. The father will never repay it. You do not know these ultramontane millionaires. They are regular misers. And by whom were they recommended to you? Oh, by the House of Fenzi, one of the best in Florence. I do not mean to say you will lose, but nevertheless, mind you hold to the terms of the agreement. Would you not trust the Cavalcanti? I? Oh, I would advance six millions on his signature. I was only speaking in reference to the second-rate fortunes we were mentioning just now. And with all this, how unassuming he is. I should never have taken him for anything more than a mere major. And you would have flattered him, for certainly, as you say, he has no manner. The first time I saw him, he appeared to me like an old lieutenant, who had grown mouldy under the epaulets. But all the Italians are the same. They are like old Jews when they are not glittering in oriental splendour. The young man is better, said Danglars. Yes, a little nervous, perhaps, 
but upon the whole he appeared tolerable. I was uneasy about him. Why? Because you met him at my house, just after his introduction into the world, as they told me. He has been travelling with a very severe tutor, and had never been to Paris before. Ah, I believe noblemen marry amongst themselves, do they not? asked Danglars carelessly. They like to unite their fortunes. It is usual, certainly, but Cavalcanti is an original who does nothing like other people. I cannot help thinking that he has brought his son to France to choose a wife. Do you think so? I am sure of it. And you have heard his fortune mentioned? Nothing else was talked of. Only some said he was worth millions, and others that he did not possess a farthing. And what is your opinion? I ought not to influence you, because it is only my own personal impression. Well, and it is that... Uh, my opinion is that all these old podestas, those ancient condottieri, for the Cavalcanti, have commanded armies and governed provinces. My opinion, I say, is that they have buried their millions in corners, the secret of which they have transmitted only to their eldest sons, who have done the same from generation to generation. And the proof of this is seen in their yellow and dry appearance, like the Florins of the Republic, which, from being constantly gazed upon, have become reflected in them. Certainly, said Danglars, and this is further supported by the fact of their not possessing an inch of land. Very little, at least. I know of none which Cavalcanti possesses, excepting his palace in Lucca. Ah, he has a palace? said Danglars, laughing. Come, that is something. Yes, and more than that. He lets it to the Minister of Finance while he lives in a simple house. Oh, as I told you before, I think the old fellow is very close. Come, you do not flatter him. I scarcely know him. I think I have seen him three times in my life. All I know relating to him is through Busoni and, and himself. He was telling me this morning that, tired of letting his property lie dormant in Italy, which is a dead nation, he wished to find a method, either in France or England, of multiplying his millions. But remember that though I place great confidence in Busoni, I am not responsible for this. Never mind. Accept my thanks for the client you have sent me. It is a fine name to inscribe on my ledgers, and my cashier was quite proud of it when I explained to him who the Cavalcanti were. By the way, this is merely a simple question. When this sort of people marry their sons, do they give them any fortune? Oh, that depends upon circumstances. I know an Italian prince, rich as a gold mine, one of the noblest families in Tuscany, who, when his sons married, according to his wish, gave them millions, and when they married against his consent, merely allowed them thirty crowns a month. 
should Andrea marry according to his father's views, he will perhaps give him one, two or three millions, for example, supposing it were the daughter of a banker. He might take an interest in the house of the father-in-law of his son. Then again, if he disliked his choice, the major takes the key, double-locks his coffer, and Master Andrea would be obliged to live like his sons of a Parisian family, by shuffling cards or rattling dice. Ah, that poor boy will find out some Bavarian or Peruvian princess. He'll want a crown and an immense fortune. No, these grand lords on the other side of the Alps frequently marry into plain families, like Jupiter. They like to cross the race. But do you wish to marry Andrea, my dear Monsieur Donglard? that you are asking so many questions? Ma foi, said Donglard, it would not be a bad speculation. I fancy, and you know I am a speculator. You are not thinking of Mademoiselle Donglard, I hope. You would not like poor Andrea to have his throat cut by Albert. Albert, repeated Donglard, shrugging his shoulders, Ah, well, you would care very little about it, I think. But he is betrothed to your daughter, I believe. Well, Monsieur de Morcerf and I have talked about this marriage. But Madame de Morcerf and Albert, you do not mean to say that it would not be a good match? Indeed. I imagine that Mademoiselle Donglard is as good as Monsieur de Morcerf. Mademoiselle Donglard's fortune will be great, no doubt, especially if the telegraph should not make any more mistakes. Oh, I do not mean her fortune only. But tell me, what? Why did you not invite Monsieur and Madame de Morcerf to your dinner? I did so. But he excused himself on account of Madame de Morcerf, being obliged to go to Dieppe for the benefit of sea air. Yes, yes, said Donglard, laughing. It would do her a great deal of good. Why so? Because it is the air she always breathed in her youth. Monte Cristo took no notice of this ill-natured remark. But still, if Albert be not so rich as Mademoiselle Donglars, said the Count, you must allow that he is a fine name. So he has, but I like mine as well. Certainly, your name is popular, and does honour to the title they have adorned it with. But you are too intelligent not to know that, according to a prejudice, too firmly rooted to be exterminated, a nobility which dates back five centuries is worth more than one that can only reckon twenty years. And for this very reason, said Donglard with a smile which he tried to make sardonic, I prefer Monsieur Andrea Calvalcanti to Monsieur Albert de Morcerf. Still, I should not think that the Morcerfs would yield to the Cavalcanti. The Morcerfs. Stay, my dear Count, said Donglard. You are a man of the world, are you not? I think so.
And you understand the heraldry? A little. Well, look at my coat of arms. It is worth more than Morcerf's. Why so? Because though I am not a baron by birth, my real name is at least Donglar. Well, what then? While his name is not Morcerf. How? Not Morcerf? Not the least in the world. Go on. I have been made a baron so that I actually am one. He made himself a count so that he is not one at all. Impossible. Listen, my dear count. Monsieur de Morcerf has been my friend, or rather my acquaintance, during the last thirty years. You know I have made the most of my arms, though I never forgot my origin. A proof of great humility or great pride, said Monte Cristo. Well, when I was a clerk, Morcerf was a mere fisherman. And then he was called? Fernand. Only Fernand? Fernand Mondego. You are sure? Pardieu, I have bought enough fish of him to know his name. Then why do you think of giving your daughter to him? Because Fernand and Danglars, being both parvenus, both having become noble, both rich, are about equal in worth, excepting that there have been certain things mentioned of him that were never said of me. What? Oh, nothing. Ah, yes, what you tell me recalls to mine something about the name of Fernand Mondego. I have heard that name in Greece. In conjunction with the affairs of Ali Pasha? Exactly so. This is the mystery, said Donglar. I acknowledge I would have given anything to find it out. It would be very easy, if you much wished it. How so? Probably you have some correspondent in Greece. I should think so. At Yanina? Everywhere. Well, write to your correspondent in Yanina, and ask him what part was played by a Frenchman named Fernand Mandego in the catastrophe of Ali Tepelini. You are right, exclaimed Anglars, rising quickly. I will write today. Do so. I will. And if you should hear of anything very scandalous, I will communicate it to you. You will oblige me. Danglars rushed out of the room and made but one leap into his coop. End of chapter 66「Chapter 67. At the Office of the King's Attorney. Let us leave the banker driving his horses at their fullest speed, and follow Madame Danglars in her morning excursion. We have said that at half-past twelve o'clock Madame Danglars had ordered her horses, 
and had left her home in the carriage. She directed her course towards the Faubourg Saint-Germain, went down the Rue Mazarine, and stopped at the Passage du Pont Neuf. She descended and went through the passage. She was very plainly dressed, as would be the case with a woman of taste walking in the morning. At the Rue Guenegaud, she called a cab and directed the driver to go to the Rue d'Arlet. As soon as she was seated in the vehicle, she drew from her pocket a very thick black veil, which she tied on to her straw bonnet. She then replaced the bonnet, and saw with pleasure, in a little pocket mirror, that her white complexion and brilliant eyes were alone visible. The cab crossed the Pont Neuf, and entered the Rue d'Arlet by the Place Dauphine. The driver was paid as the door opened, and stepping lightly up the stairs, Madame Donglard soon reached the Salle des Pas Perdus. There was a great deal going on that morning, and many business-like persons at the Palais. Business-like persons pay very little attention to women, and Madame Donglard crossed the hall without exciting any more attention than any other woman calling upon her lawyer. There was a great press of people in Monsieur de Villefort's antechamber, but Madame Donglard had no occasion even to pronounce her name. The instant she appeared, the doorkeeper rose, came to her and asked her whether she was not the person with whom the procureur had made an appointment, and on her affirmative answer being given, he conducted her by a private passage to Monsieur de Villefort's office. The magistrate was seated in an armchair, writing with his back toward the door. He did not move as he heard it open, and the doorkeeper pronounced the words, Walk in, madame, and then reclose it. But no sooner had the man's footsteps ceased than he started up, drew the bolts, closed the curtains, and examined every corner of the room. Then, when he had assured himself that he could neither be seen nor heard, and was consequently relieved of doubts, he said, Thanks, madame, thanks for your punctuality. And he offered a chair to madame Donglard, which she accepted, for her heart beat so violently that she felt nearly suffocated. "'It is a long time, madame,' said the procureur, describing a half-circle with his chair, so as to place himself exactly opposite to madame Donglard. "'It is a long time since I had the pleasure of speaking alone with you, and I regret that we have only now met to enter upon a painful conversation.' "'Nevertheless, sir, you see I have answered your first appeal,' "'although certainly the conversation must be much more painful for me than for you,' Villefort smiled bitterly. "'It is true, then,' he said, rather uttering his thoughts aloud than addressing his companion. "'It is true, then, that all our actions leave their traces, some sad, others bright, on our paths. "'It is true that every step in our lives is like the course of an insect on the sands. It leaves its track. Alas, to many the path is traced by tears. Sir, said Madame Donglard, you can feel for my emotion, can you not? Spare me, then, I beseech you. When I look at this room, whence so many guilty creatures have departed, trembling and ashamed, when I look at that chair before which I now sit trembling and ashamed, Oh, it requires all my reason to convince me that I am not a very guilty woman and you a menacing judge. 
Villefort dropped his head and sighed. And I, he said, I feel that my place is not in the judge's seat, but on the prisoner's stool. You, said Madame Danglars. Yes, I. I think, sir, you exaggerate your situation, said Madame Danglars, whose beautiful eyes sparkled for a moment. The paths of which you were just speaking have been traced by all young men of ardent imaginations. Besides the pleasure, there is always remorse from the indulgence of our passions, and after all, what have you meant to fear from all this? The world excuses, and notoriety ennobles you. Madame, replied Villefort, you know that I am no hypocrite, or at least that I never deceive without a reason. If my brow be severe, it is because many misfortunes have clouded it. If my heart be petrified, it is that I might sustain the blows it has received. I was not so in my youth. I was not so on the night of the betrothal, when we were all seated around a table in the Rue du Cours at Marseille. But since then everything has changed in and about me. I am accustomed to brave difficulties, and in the conflict to crush those who, by their own free will, or by chance, voluntarily or involuntarily interfere with me in my career. It is generally the case that what we most ardently desire is as ardently withheld from us by those who wish to obtain it, or from whom we attempt to snatch it. Thus, the greater number of a man's errors come before him disguised under the specious form of necessity. Then, after error has been committed in a moment of excitement, of delirium, or of fear, we see that we might have avoided and escaped it. The means we might have used, which we in our blindness could not see, then seem simple and easy. And we say, why did I not do this instead of that? Women, on the contrary, are rarely tormented with remorse, for the decision does not come from you. Your misfortunes are generally imposed upon you, and your faults the results of others' crimes. In any case, sir, you will allow, replied Madame Nonglar, that even if the fault were alone mine, I last night received a severe punishment for it. Poor thing, said Villefort, pressing her hand. It was too severe for your strength. For you were twice overwhelmed, and yet... Well? Well, I must tell you. Collect all your courage, for you have not yet heard it all. Ah, <sighs> exclaimed Madame Danglars, alarmed. What is there more to hear? You only look back to the past, and it is indeed bad enough. Well, picture to yourself a future more gloomy still, certainly frightful, perhaps sanguinary. The Baroness knew how calm Villefort naturally was, and his present excitement frightened her so much that she opened her mouth to scream, but the sound died in her throat. How has this terrible past been recalled? cried Villefort. How is it that it has escaped from the depths of the tomb and the recesses of our hearts where it was buried to visit us now like a phantom? 
whitening our cheeks and flushing our brows with shame. Alas, said Hermine, doubtless it is chance. Chance, replied Villefort. No, no, madame, there is no such thing as chance. Oh, yes, has not a fatal chance revealed all this? Was it not by chance the Count of Monte Cristo bought that house? Was it not by chance he caused the earth to be dug up? Is it not by chance that the unfortunate child was disinterred under the trees? That poor, innocent offspring of mine, which I never even kissed, but for whom I wept many, many tears. Ah, my heart clung to the Count when he mentioned the dear spoil found beneath the flowers. Well, no, madame, this is the terrible news I have to tell you said Villefort in a hollow voice. No, nothing was found beneath the flowers. There was no child disinterred. No, you must not weep. No, you must not groan. You must tremble. What can you mean? asked Madame Donglard, shuddering. I mean that Monsieur de Monte Cristo, digging underneath these trees, found neither skeleton nor chest, because neither of them was there. Neither of them there, repeated Madame Danglars, her staring, wide-open eyes expressing her alarm. Neither of them there, she again said, as though striving to impress herself with the meaning of the words which escaped her. No, said Villefort, burying his face in his hands. No, a hundred times no. Then you did not bury the poor child there, sir. Why did you deceive me? Where did you place it? Tell me where. There. But listen to me, listen, and you will pity me, who has for twenty years alone borne the heavy burden of grief I am about to reveal without casting the least portion upon you. Oh, you frighten me. But speak, I will listen. You recollect that sad night, when you were half expiring on that bed in the red damask room? while I, scarcely less agitated than you, awaited your delivery. The child was born, was given to me, motionless, breathless, voiceless. We thought it dead. Madame Danglars moved rapidly as though she would spring from her chair, but Villefort stopped and clasped his hands as if to implore her attention. We thought it dead, he repeated. I placed it in the chest which was to take the place of a coffin. I descended to the garden, I dug a hole, and then flung it down in haste. Scarcely had I covered it with earth when the arm of the Corsican was stretched towards me. I saw a shadow rise, and at the same time a flash of light. I felt pain. I wished to cry out, but an icy shiver ran through my veins and stifled my voice. I fell, lifeless, and fancied myself killed. Never shall I forget your sublime courage, when having returned to consciousness, I dragged myself to the foot of the stairs, and you, almost dying yourself, came to meet me. We were obliged to keep silent upon the dreadful catastrophe. You had the fortitude to regain the house, assisted by your nurse. A duel was the pretext for my wound, though we scarcely expected it. 
Our secret remained in our own keeping alone. I was taken to Versailles. For three months I struggled with death. At last, as I seemed to cling to life, I was ordered to the south. Four men carried me from Paris to Chalons, walking six leagues a day. Madame de Villefort followed the litter in her carriage. At Chalons I was put upon the Sound. Thence I passed on to the Rhône, whence I descended merely with the Count to Arles. At Arles I was again placed on my litter, and continued my journey to Marseille. My recovery lasted six months. I never heard you mentioned, and I did not dare inquire for you. When I returned to Paris, I learned that you, the widow of Monsieur de Nargonne, had married Monsieur Danglars. What was the subject of my thoughts from the time consciousness returned to me? Always the same. Always the child's corpse, coming every night in my dreams, rising from the earth and hovering over the grave with menacing look and gesture. I inquired immediately on my return to Paris. The house had not been inhabited since we left it, but it had just been let for nine years. I found the tenant. I pretended that I disliked the idea that a house belonging to my wife's father and mother should pass into the hands of strangers. I offered to pay them for cancelling the lease. They demanded six thousand francs. I would have given ten thousand. I would have given twenty thousand. I had the money with me. I made the tenant sign the deed of resolution, and when I had obtained what I so much wanted, I galloped to Auteuil. No one had entered the house since I had left it. It was five o'clock in the afternoon. I ascended into the red room and waited for night. There, all the thoughts which had disturbed me during my years of constant agony came back with double force. The Corsican, who had declared the vendetta against me, who had followed me from Nîmes to Paris, who had hid himself in the garden, who had struck me, had seen me dig the grave, had seen me enter the child. He might become acquainted with your person. Nay, he might even then have known it. Would he not one day make you pay for keeping this terrible secret? Would it not be a sweet revenge for him when he found that I had not died from the blow of his dagger? It was therefore necessary, before everything else and at all risks, that I should cause all traces of the past to disappear, that I should destroy every material vestige. Too much reality would always remain in my recollection. It was for this I had annulled the lease. It was for this I had come. It was for this I was waiting. Night arrived. I allowed it to become quite dark. I was without a light in that room, when the wind shook all the doors, behind which I continually expected to see some spy concealed. I trembled. I seemed everywhere to hear your moans behind me in the bed, and I dared not turn around. My heart beat so violently that I feared my wound would open. At length, one by one, all the noises in the neighborhood ceased. 
I understood that I had nothing to fear, that I should neither be seen nor heard. So I decided upon descending to the garden. Listen, Hermine, I consider myself as brave as most men. But when I drew my from my breast the little key of the staircase, which I had found in my coat, that little key we have both used to cherish so much, which you wish to have fastened to a golden ring, when I opened the door and saw the pale moon shedding a long stream of white light on the spiral staircase like a spectre, I leaned against the wall and nearly shrieked. I seemed to be going mad. At last I mastered my agitation. I descended the staircase step by step. The only thing I could not conquer was a strange trembling in my knees. I grasped the railings. If I had relaxed my hold for a moment, I should have fallen. I reached the lower door. Outside this door, a spade was placed against a wall. I took it and advanced toward the thicket. I had provided myself with a dark lantern. In the middle of the lawn, I stopped to light it. Then I continued my path. It was the end of November. All the verdure of the garden had disappeared. The trees were nothing more than skeletons with their long, bony arms, and the dead leaves sounded on the gravel under my feet. My terror overcame me to such a degree as I approached the thicket that I took a pistol from my pocket and armed myself. I fancied continually that I saw the figure of the Corsican between the branches. I examined the thicket with my dark lantern. It was empty. I looked carefully around. I was indeed alone. No noise disturbed the silence but the owl, whose piercing cry seemed to be calling up the phantoms of the night. I tied my lantern to a forked branch. I had noticed a year before at the precise spot where I stopped to dig the hole. The grass had grown very thickly there during the summer, and when autumn arrived, no one had been there to mow it. Still, one place where the grass was thin attracted my attention. It evidently was there I had turned up the ground. I went to work. The hour, then, for which I had been waiting during the last year, had at length arrived. How I worked, how I hoped, how I struck every piece of turf, thinking to find some resistance to my spade. But no, I found nothing, though I had made a hole twice as large as the first. I thought I had been deceived. I had mistaken the spot. I turned around. I looked at the trees. I tried to recall the details which had struck me at the time. A cold, sharp wind whistled through the leafless branches, and yet the drops fell from my forehead. I recollected that I was stabbed just as I was trampling the ground to fill up the hole, which, doing so, I had leaned against a laburnum. Behind me was an artificial rockery intended to serve as a resting place for persons walking in the garden. In falling, my hand, relaxing its hold of the laburnum, felt the coldness of the stone. On my right I saw the tree, behind me the rock. I stood in the same attitude and threw myself down. I rose and again began digging and enlarging the hole. Still, 
I found nothing, nothing. The chest was no longer there. The chest was no longer there, murmured Madame Danglars, choking with fear. Think not I contented myself with this one effort, continued Villefort. No, I searched the whole thicket. I thought the assassin, having discovered the chest, and supposing it to be a treasure, had intended carrying it off. But perceiving his error, had dug another hole and deposited it there. But I could find nothing. Then the idea struck me that he had not taken these precautions and had simply thrown it in a corner. In the last case, I must wait for daylight to renew my search. I remained in the room and waited. Oh, heavens! When daylight dawned, I went down again. My first visit was to the thicket. I hoped to find some traces which had escaped me in the darkness. I had turned up the earth over a surface of more than twenty feet square and a depth of two feet. A laborer would not have done in a day what occupied me an hour. But I could find nothing. Absolutely nothing. Then I renewed the search. Supposing it had been thrown aside, it would probably be on the path which led to the little gate. But this examination was as useless as the first, and with a bursting heart I returned to the thicket, which now contained no hope for me. Oh, cried Madame Danglars, it was enough to drive you mad. I hoped for a moment that it might, said Villefort, but that happiness was denied me. However, recovering my strength and my ideas, why, said I, should that man have carried away the corpse? But you said, replied Madame Danglars, he would require it as a proof. Ah, no, madame, that could not be. Dead bodies are not kept a year. They are shown to a magistrate and the evidence is taken. Now nothing of the kind has happened. What then? asked Hermine, trembling violently. Something more terrible, more fatal, more alarming for us. The child was, perhaps, alive, and the assassin may have saved it. Madame Danglars uttered a piercing cry, and seizing Villefort's hands exclaimed, My child was alive, she said. You buried my child alive. You were not certain my child was dead and you buried it? Oh! Madame Danglars had risen and stood before the procureur, whose hands she wrung in her feeble grasp. I know not. I merely suppose so, as I might suppose anything else, replied Villefort, with a look so fixed it indicated that his powerful mind was on the verge of despair and madness. Ah, oh, my poor child, my poor child, cried the baroness, falling on her chair and stifling her sobs in her handkerchief. Villefort became somewhat reassured, perceived that to avert the maternal storm gathering over his head, he must inspire Madame Danglars with the terror he felt. You understand, then, that if it were so, said he, rising in his turn, and approaching the baroness to speak to her in a lower tone. We are lost. This child lives, and someone knows it lives. Someone 
who is in possession of our secret. And since Monte Cristo speaks before us of a child disinterred, when that child could not be found, it is he who is in possession of our secret. Just God, avenging God, murmured Madame Danglars. Villefort's only answer was a stifled groan. But the child, the child, sir, repeated the agitated mother. How I have searched for him, replied Villefort, wringing his hands. How I have called him in my long sleepless nights. How I have longed for royal wealth to purchase a million of secrets from a million of men and to find mine among them. At last, one day, when for the hundredth time I took up my spade, I asked myself again and again what the Corsican could have done with a child. A child encumbers a fugitive. Perhaps on perceiving it was still alive, he had thrown it into the river. Impossible, cried Madame Danglars. A man may murder another out of revenge, but he would not deliberately drown a child. Perhaps, continued Villefort, he had put it in the foundling hospital. Oh, yes, yes, cried the baroness. My child is there. I ran to the hospital and learned that the same night, the night of the 20th of September, a child had been brought there, wrapped in a part of a fine linen napkin, purposely torn in half. This portion of the napkin was marked with a half a baron's crown and the letter H. Truly, truly, said Madame Danglars, all my linen is marked thus. Monsieur de Nargonne was a baronet, and my name is Hermine. Thank God, my child was not then dead. No, it was not dead. And you can tell me so without fearing to make me die of joy? Where is the child? Villefort shrugged his shoulders. Do I know? said he. And do you believe that if I knew I would relate to you all its trials and all its adventures as would a dramatist or a novel writer? Alas, no. I know not. A woman about six months after came to claim it with the other half of the napkin. This woman gave all the requisite particulars and it was entrusted to her. But you should have inquired for the woman. You should have traced her. And what do you think I did? I feigned a criminal process and employed all the most acute bloodhounds and skilful agents in search of her. They traced her to Chalon, and there they lost her. They lost her? Yes, forever. Madame Danglars had listened to this recital with a sigh, a tear, or a shriek for every detail. And this is all? said she. And you stop there? Oh, no, said Villefort. I never ceased to search and to inquire. However, the last two or three years I had allowed myself some respite. But now I will begin with more perseverance and fury than ever, since fear urges me, not my conscience. But, replied Madame Danglars, the Count of Monte Cristo can know nothing, or he would not seek our society as he does. Oh, the wickedness of man is very great said Villefort. 
since it surpasses the goodness of God, did you observe that man's eyes while he was speaking to us? No. But have you ever watched him carefully? Doubtless he is capricious, but that is all. One thing alone struck me. Of all the exquisite things he placed before us, he touched nothing. I might have suspected he was poisoning us. And you see, you would have been deceived. Yes, doubtless. But believe me, that man has other projects. For that reason I wish to see you, to speak to you, to warn you against everyone, but especially against him. Tell me, cried Villefort, fixing his eyes more steadfastly on her than he had ever done before. Did you ever reveal to anyone our connection? Never, to anyone. You understand me, replied Villefort affectionately. When I say one, pardon my urgency, to any one living, I mean. Yes, yes, I understand very well, ejaculated the baroness. Never, I swear to you. Were you ever in the habit of writing in the evening what had transpired in the morning? Do you keep a journal? No, my life has been passed in frivolity. I wish to forget it myself. Do you talk in your sleep? I sleep soundly like a child. Do you not remember? The colour mounted to the baroness's face, and Villefort turned awfully pale. It is true, said he, in so low a tone that he could hardly be heard. Well, said the baroness. Well, I understand what I now have to do, replied Villefort. In less than one week from this time, I will ascertain who this Monsieur de Monte Cristo is, whence he comes, where he goes, and why he speaks in our presence of children that have been disinterred in a garden. Villefort pronounced these words with an accent which would have made the Count shudder had he heard him. Then he pressed the hand the Baroness reluctantly gave him, and led her respectfully back to the door. Madame Donglars returned in another cab to the passage, on the other side of which she found her carriage, and her coachman sleeping peacefully on his box while waiting for her. End of chapter 67「Chapter 68. A Summer Ball The same day, during the interview between Madame Donglars and the procureur, a travelling carriage entered the Rue du Helder, passed through the gateway of number 27, and stopped in the yard. In a moment the door was opened and Madame de Morcerf alighted, leaning on her son's arm. Albert soon left her, ordered his horses, and having arranged his toilet, drove to the Champs-Élysées to the house of Monte Cristo. The Count received him with his habitual smile. It was a strange thing that no one ever appeared to advance a step in that man's favour. Those who would, as it were, force a passage to his heart, found an impassable barrier. Morcerf, who ran towards him with open arms, was chilled as he drew near, in spite of the friendly smile, and simply held out his hand. Monte Cristo shook it coldly, 
according to his invariable practice. Here I am, dear Count. Welcome home again. I arrived an hour since. From Dieppe? No, from Treport. Indeed. And I have come at once to see you. This is extremely kind of you, said Monte Cristo with a tone of perfect indifference. And what is the news? You should not ask a stranger, a foreigner, for news. I know it, but in asking for news, I mean, have you done anything for me? Had you commissioned me? said Monte Cristo, feigning uneasiness. Come, come, said Albert, do not assume so much indifference. It is said, sympathy travels rapidly, and when at Treport, I felt the electric shock. You have either been working for me or thinking of me. Possibly, said Monte Cristo. I have indeed thought of you, but the magnetic wire I was guiding acted indeed without my knowledge. Indeed, pray tell me how it happened. Willingly, Monsieur Danglars dined with me. I know it. To avoid meeting him, my mother and I left town. But he met here Monsieur Andrea Cavalcanti. Your Italian prince? Not so fast. Monsieur Andrea only calls himself Count. Calls himself, do you say? Yes, calls himself. Is he not a Count? What can I know of him? He calls himself so. I, of course, give him the same title. And everyone else does likewise. What a strange man you are. What next? You say Monsieur Donglars dined here? Yes, with Count Cavalcanti. The Marquis, his father, Madame Donglars, Monsieur and Madame de Villefort. Charming people. Monsieur de Bray, Maximilien Morel, and Monsieur de Chateau-Renaud. Did they speak of me? Not a word. So much the worse. Why so? I thought you wished them to forget you. If they do not speak of me, I am sure they thought about me, and I am in despair. How will that affect you, since Mademoiselle Donglars was not among the number here who thought of you? Truly she might have thought of you at home. I have no fear of that. Or if she did, it was only in the same way in which I think of her. Touching sympathy! So you hate each other, said the Count. Listen, said Morcerf. If Mademoiselle Donglars were disposed to take pity on my supposed martyrdom on her account, and would dispense with all matrimonial formalities between our two families, I am ready to agree to the arrangement. In a word, Mademoiselle Donglars would make a charming mistress. But a wife? Diable! And this, said Monte Cristo, is your opinion of your intended spouse? Yes, it is rather unkind, I acknowledge, but it is true. But as this dream cannot be realized, since Mademoiselle Donglars must become my lawful wife, live perpetually with me, sing to me, compose verses and music within ten paces of me, and that for my whole life, it frightens me. One may forsake a mistress, but a wife, good heavens, there she must always be, and to marry Mademoiselle Donglars would be awful. You are difficult to please, Viscount. 
Yes, for I often wish for what is impossible. What is that? To find such a wife as my father found. Monte Cristo turned pale and looked at Albert while playing with some magnificent pistols. Your father was fortunate then, said he. You know my opinion of my mother, Count. Look at her, still beautiful, witty, more charming than ever. For any other son to have stayed with his mother for four days at Treport, it would have been a condescension or a martyrdom. While I return more contented, more peaceful, shall I say more poetic, than if I had taken Queen Mab or Titania as my companion. That is an overwhelming demonstration, and you would make everyone vow to live a single life. Such are my reasons for not liking to marry Mademoiselle Danglars. Have you ever noticed how much a thing is heightened in value when we obtain possession of it? The diamond which glittered in the window at Mars or Fossins shines with much more splendor when it is our own. But if we are compelled to acknowledge the superiority of another and still must retain the one that is inferior, do you not know what we have to endure? Worldling, murmured the Count. Thus I shall rejoice when Mademoiselle Eugenie perceives I am but a pitiful atom, with scarcely as many hundred thousand francs as she has millions. Monte Cristo smiled. One plan occurred to me, continued Albert. France likes all that is eccentric. I tried to make him fall in love with Mademoiselle Danglars, but in spite of four letters written in the most alluring style, he invariably answered, My eccentricity may be great, but it will not make me break my promise. That is what I call a devoted friendship, to recommend to another one whom you would not marry yourself. Albert smiled. A propos, continued he, France is coming soon, but it will not interest you. You dislike him, I think. I? said Monte Cristo. My dear Viscount, how have you discovered that I did not like Monsieur France? I like everyone. And you include me in the expression everyone? Many thanks. Let us not mistake, said Monte Cristo. I love everyone as God commands us to love our neighbor as Christians. But I thoroughly hate but a few. Let us return to Monsieur Franz Depinay. Did you say he was coming? Yes, summoned by Monsieur de Villefort, who is apparently as anxious to get Mademoiselle Valentine married as Monsieur Donglar is to see Mademoiselle Eugenie settled. It must be a very irksome office to be the father of a grown-up daughter. It seems to make one feverish and to raise one's pulse to ninety beats a minute until the deed is done. But Monsieur d'Epinay, unlike you, bears his misfortune patiently. Still more, he talks seriously about the matter, puts on a white tie, and speaks of his family. He entertains a very high opinion of Monsieur and Madame de Villefort. Which they deserve, do they not? I believe they do. Monsieur de Villefort has always passed for a severe, but a just man. There is then one said Monte Cristo, whom you do not condemn like poor Danglars. <laughs> because I am not compelled to marry his daughter, perhaps, replied Albert, laughing.
"'Indeed, my dear sir,' said Monte Cristo, "'you are revoltingly foppish.' "'I, foppish? How do you mean?' "'Yes. Pray take a cigar, and cease to defend yourself, "'and to struggle to escape marrying Mademoiselle Donglar. "'Let things take their course. Perhaps you may not have to retract.' "'Pah!' said Albert, staring. "'Doubtless, my dear Viscount.' You will not be taken by force. And seriously, do you wish to break off your engagement? I would give a hundred thousand francs to be able to do so. Then make yourself quite easy. Monsieur Donglar would get double at sum to attain the same end. Am I indeed so happy? said Albert, who still could not prevent an almost imperceptible cloud passing across his brow. But, my dear Count... "'Has Monsieur Donglar any reason?' "'Ah, there is your proud and selfish nature. "'You would expose the self-love of another with a hatchet, "'but you shrink if your own is attacked with a needle. "'But yet Monsieur Donglar appeared delighted with you, was he not? "'Well, he is a man of bad taste, "'and is still more enchanted with another. "'I know not whom. Look and judge for yourself.' "'Thank you. I understand. But my mother—no, not my mother. A mistake. My father intends giving a ball.' "'A ball at this season? Summer balls are fashionable.' "'If they were not, the Countess has only to wish it, and they would become so.' "'You are right. You know they are select affairs. Those who remain in Paris in July must be true Parisian.' "'Will you take charge of our invitation to Messieurs Cavalcanti? "'When will it take place?' "'On Saturday. "'Monsieur Cavalcanti's father will be gone. "'But the son will be here. "'Will you invite young Monsieur Cavalcanti?' "'I do not know him, Viscount.' "'You do not know him?' "'No, I never saw him until a few days since, "'and I'm not responsible for him.' "'But you receive him at your house.' "'That is another thing. "'He was recommended to me by a good abbé, who may be deceived. "'Give him a direct invitation, but do not ask me to present him. "'If he were afterwards to marry Mademoiselle Donglar, "'you would accuse me of intrigue, and would be challenging me. "'Besides, I may not be there myself.' "'Where?' "'At your ball.' "'Why should you not be there?' "'because you have not yet invited me. "'But I come expressly for that purpose. "'You are very kind, but I may be prevented. "'If I tell you one thing, "'you will be so amiable as to set aside all impediments. "'Tell me what it is. "'My mother begs you to come.' "'The Comtesse de Morcerf,' said Monte Cristo, starting. "'Ah, Count,' said Albert, I assure you, Madame de Morcerf speaks freely to me, and if you have not felt those sympathetic fibres of which I spoke just now thrill within you, you must be entirely devoid of them, for during the last four days we have spoken of no one else. You have talked of me? Yes, that is the penalty of being a living puzzle. Then I am also a puzzle to your mother. I should have thought her too reasonable 
to be led by imagination. A problem, my dear Count, for every one, for my mother as well as others, much studied but not solved, you still remain an enigma, do not fear. My mother is only astonished that you remain so long unsolved. I believe while the Countess G takes you for Lord Ruthven, my mother imagines you to be Cagliostro or the Count Saint-Germain. The first opportunity you have, confirm her in her opinion. It will be easy for you, as you have the philosophy of the one and the wit of the other. I thank you for the warning, said the Count. I shall endeavour to be prepared for all suppositions. You will then come on Saturday? Yes, since Madame de Morcerf invites me. You are very kind. Will Monsieur Danglars be there? He has already been invited by my father. We shall try to persuade the great D'Aguesseau, Monsieur de Villefort, to come, but have not much hope of seeing him. Never despair of anything, says the proverb. Do you dance, Count? I dance. Yes, you. It would not be astonishing. That is very well before one is over forty. No, I do not dance, but I like to see others do so. Does Madame de Morcerf dance? Never. You can talk to her. She so delights in your conversation. Indeed. Yes, truly, and I assure you, you are the only man of whom I have heard her speak with interest. Albert rose and took his hat. The Count conducted him to the door. I have one thing to reproach myself with, said he, stopping Albert on the steps. What is it? I have spoken to you indiscreetly about Danglars. On the contrary, speak to me always in the same strain about him. I am glad to be reassured on that point. Apropos, when do you expect Monsieur d'Epinay? Five or six days hence, at the latest. And when is he to be married? Immediately on the arrival of Monsieur and Madame de Saint-Méran. Bring him to see me. Although you say I do not like him, I assure you I shall be happy to see him. I will obey your orders, my lord. Good-bye. Until Saturday, when I may expect you, may I not? Yes, I promised you. The Count watched Albert, waving his hand to him. When he had mounted his phaeton, Monte Cristo turned and seeing Bertuccio. What news? said he. She went to the palais, replied the steward. Did she stay long there? An hour and a half. Did she return home? Directly. Well, my dear Bertuccio, said the Count, I now advise you to go in quest of the little estate I spoke to you of in Normandy. Bertuccio bowed, and as his wishes were in perfect harmony with the order he had received, he started the same evening. End of chapter 68「Chapter 69. The Inquiry. Monsieur de Villefort, 
kept the promise he had made to Madame Donglard to endeavour to find out how the Count of Monte Cristo had discovered the history of the house at Auteuil. He wrote the same day for the required information to Monsieur de Beauville, who, from having been an inspector of prisons, was promoted to a high office in the police, and the latter begged for two days' time to ascertain exactly who would be most likely to give him full particulars. At the end of the second day, Monsieur de Villefort received the following note. The person called the Count of Monte Cristo is an intimate acquaintance of Lord Wilmore, a rich foreigner, who is sometimes seen in Paris and who is there at this moment. He is also known to the Abbe Busoni, a Sicilian priest of high repute in East, where he has done much good. Monsieur de Villefort replied by ordering the strictest inquiries to be made respecting these two persons. His orders were executed, and the following evening he received these details. The abbé, who was in Paris only for a month, inhabited a small two-storied house behind Saint-Sulpice. There were two rooms on each floor, and he was the only tenant. The two lower rooms consisted of a dining room with a table, chairs, and a sideboard of walnut, and a wainscoted parlour without ornaments, carpet, or timepiece. It was evident that the abbé limited himself to objects of strict necessity. He preferred to use the sitting room upstairs, which was more library than parlour, and was furnished with theological books and parchments, in which he delighted to bury himself for months at a time, according to his valet de chambre. His valet looked at the visitors through a sort of wicket, and if their faces were unknown to him or displeased him, he replied that the abbé was not in Paris, an answer which satisfied most persons, because the abbé was known to be a great traveller. Besides, whether at home or not, whether in Paris or Cairo, the abbé always left something to give away, which the valet distributed through his wicket in his master's name. The other room near the library was a bedroom, a bed without curtains, four armchairs and a couch covered with yellow Utrecht velvet, composed with a prie-dieu all its furniture. Lord Wilmore resided in Rue Fontaine-Saint-Georges. He was one of those English tourists who consume a large fortune in travelling, he hired the apartment in which he lived, furnished, passed only a few hours in the day there, and rarely slept there. One of his peculiarities was never to speak a word of French, which he, however, wrote with great facility. The day after this important information had been given to the king's attorney, a man alighted from a carriage at the corner of the Rue Farou, and, rapping at an olive-green door, asked if the Abbe Busoni were within. No. He went out early this morning, replied the valet. I might not always be content with that answer, replied the visitor, for I come from one to whom everyone must be at home, but have the kindness to give the Abbe Bussoni. I told you he was not at home, repeated the valet. Then on his return, give him that card and this sealed paper. Will he be at home at eight o'clock this evening? Doubtless, unless he is at work which is the same as if he were out. I will come again at that time, replied the visitor, who then retired. At the appointed hour, the same man returned in the same carriage, which, instead of stopping this time at the end of the Rue Ferru, drove up to the green door. He knocked, and it opened immediately to admit him. From the signs of respect the valet paid him, he saw that his note had produced a good effect. Is the abbe at home? asked he. Yes, he is at work in his library, but he expects you, sir. 
replied the valet. The stranger ascended a rough staircase, and before a table illumined by a lamp whose light was concentrated by a large shade, while the rest of the apartment was in partial darkness, he perceived the abbe in a monk's dress, with a cowl on his head, such as is used by learned men of the Middle Ages. "'Have I the honour of addressing the abbe Boussoni?' asked the visitor. "'Yes, sir,' replied the abbe. "'And you are the person whom Monsieur de Beauville, formerly an inspector of prisons, sends to me from the prefect of police?' "'Exactly, sir.' one of the agents appointed to secure the safety of Paris. Yes, sir, replied the stranger with a slight hesitation and blushing. The abbe replaced the large spectacles which covered not only his eyes but his temples, and sitting down motioned to his visitor to do the same. I am at your service, sir, said the abbe with a marked Italian accent. The mission with which i am charged sir replied the visitor speaking with hesitation is a confidential one on the part of him who fulfils it and him by whom he is employed the abbe bowed your probity replied the stranger is so well known to the prefect that he wishes as a magistrate to ascertain from you some particulars connected with the public safety, to ascertain which I am deputed to see you. It is hoped that no ties of friendship or humane consideration will induce you to conceal the truth. Provided, sir, the particulars you wish for do not interfere with my scruples or my conscience. I am a priest, sir, and the secrets of confession, for instance, must remain between me and God and not between me and human justice. Do not alarm yourself, monsieur. We will duly respect your conscience. At this moment, the abbe pressed down his side of the shade and so raised it on the other, throwing a bright light on the stranger's face, while his own remained obscured. Excuse me, abbe, said the envoy of the prefect of the police, but the light tries my eyes very much. The abbe lowered the shade. Now, sir, I am listening. Go on. I will come at once to the point. Do you know the Count of Monte Cristo? You mean Monsieur Zacon, I presume. Zacon? Is not his name Monte Cristo? Monte Cristo is the name of an estate, or rather of a rock, and not a family name. Well, be it so. Let us not dispute about words. And since Monsieur de Monte Cristo and Monsieur Zacon are the same, absolutely the same, let us speak of Monsieur Zacon. Agreed. I asked you if you knew him. Extremely well. Who is he? the son of a rich shipbuilder in Malta. I know that is a report, but as you are aware, the police does not content itself with vague reports. However, replied the abbe with an affable smile, when that report is in accordance with the truth, everybody must believe it, the police as well as all the rest. 
Are you sure of what you assert? What do you mean by that question? Understand, sir, I do not in the least suspect your veracity. I ask if you are certain of it. I knew his father, Monsieur Zacon. Ah, indeed. And when a child, I often played with the son in the timber yards. But whence does he derive the title of Count? You are aware that may be bought. In Italy? Everywhere. And his immense riches? Whence does he procure them? They may not be so very great. How much do you suppose he possesses? From one hundred and fifty two hundred thousand livres per annum? That is reasonable, said the visitor. I have heard he had three or four million. Two hundred thousand per annum would make four millions of capital. But I was told he had four million per annum. That is not probable. Do you know this island of Monte Cristo? Certainly. Everyone who has come from Palermo, Napoli or Roma to France by sea must know it since he has passed close to it and must have seen it. I am told it is a delightful place. It is a rock. And why has the Count bought a rock? For the sake of being a Count. In Italy, one must have territorial possessions to be a Count. You have doubtless heard the adventures of Monsieur Zacan's youth. The father's? No, the son's. I know nothing certain. At that period of his life, I lost sight of my young comrade. Was he in the wars? I think he entered the service. In what branch? In the navy. Are you not his confessor? No, sir, I believe he is a Lutheran. A Lutheran? I say I believe such is the case. I do not affirm it. Besides, liberty of conscience is established in France. Doubtless, and we are not now inquiring into his creed, but his actions, in the name of the Prefect of Police. I ask you what you know of him. He passes for a very charitable man. Our Holy Father, the Pope, has made him a knight of Jesus Christ for the services he rendered to the Christians in the East. He has five or six rings as testimonials from Eastern monarchs of his services. Does he wear them? No, but he is proud of them. He is better pleased with rewards given to the benefactors of man than to his destroyers. He is a Quaker, then. Exactly, he is a Quaker, with the exception of the peculiar dress. Has he any friends? Yes, everyone who knows him is his friend. But has he any enemies? One only. What is his name? Lord Wilmore. Where is he? He is in Paris just now. Can he give me any particulars? Important ones. He was in India with Zacon. Do you know his abode? It's somewhere in the Chaussée d'Antin, but I know neither the street nor the number. Are you at variance with the Englishman? I love Zacon, and he hates him. We are consequently not friends.
Do you think the Count of Monte Cristo had ever been in France before he made his visit to Paris? To that question I can answer positively no. He had not, because he applied to me six months ago for the particulars he required, and as I did not know when I might again come to Paris, I recommended Monsieur Cavalcanti to him. Andrea? No, Bartolomeo, his father. Now, sir, I have but one question more to ask, and I charge you in the name of honour, of humanity and of religion, to answer me candidly. What is it, sir? Do you know with what design Monsieur de Monte Cristo purchased a house at Auteuil? Certainly, for he told me. What is it, sir? To make a lunatic asylum of it, similar to that founded by the Count of Pisani at Palermo. Do you know about that institution? I have heard of it. It is a magnificent charity. Having said this, the abbe bowed to imply he wished to pursue his studies. The visitor either understood the abbe's meaning, or had no more questions to ask. He arose, and the abbe accompanied him to the door. "'You are a great almsgiver,' said the visitor, "'and although you are said to be rich, "'I will venture to offer you something for your poor people. "'Will you accept my offering?' "'I thank you, sir. "'I am only jealous in one thing, "'and that is that the relief I give "'should be entirely from my own resources. "'However,' My resolution, sir, is unchangeable, but you have only to search for yourself, and you will find, alas, but too many objects upon whom to exercise your benevolence. The abbe once more bowed as he opened the door. The stranger bowed and took his leave, and the carriage conveyed him straight to the house of Monsieur de Villefort. An hour afterwards, the carriage was again ordered, and this time it went to the Rue Fontaine-Saint-Georges and stopped at number five, where Lord Wilmore lived. The stranger had written to Lord Wilmore, requesting an interview, which the latter had fixed for ten o'clock. As the envoy of the Prefect of Police arrived ten minutes before ten, he was told that Lord Wilmore, who was precision and punctuality personified, was not yet come in, but that he should be sure to return as the clock struck. The visitor was introduced into the drawing-room, which was like all other furnished drawing-rooms, a mantelpiece with two modern Sèvres vases, a timepiece representing Cupid with his bent bow, a mirror with an engraving on each side, one representing Homer carrying his guide, the other Belisarius begging, a greyish paper, red and black tapestry. Such was the appearance of Lord Wilmore's drawing-room. It was illuminated by lamps with ground-glass shades which gave only a feeble light, as if out of consideration for the envoy's weak sight. After ten minutes' expectation, the clock struck ten. At the fifth stroke, the door opened, and Lord Wilmore appeared. He was rather above the middle height, with thin reddish whiskers, light complexion and light hair, turning rather grey. He was dressed with all the English peculiarity namely in a blue coat with gilt buttons and high collar in the fashion of 1811, a white kerseymere waistcoat 
and nankeen pantaloons three inches too short, but which were prevented by straps from slipping up to the knee. His first remark on entering was, oh, You know, sir, I do not speak French. I know you do not like to converse in our language, replied the envoy. But you may use it, replied Lord Wilmore. I understand it. And I, replied the visitor, changing his idiom, know enough of English to keep up the conversation. Do not put yourself to the slightest inconvenience. Oh, said Lord Wilmore, with that tone which is only known to natives of Great Britain. The envoy presented his letter of introduction, which the latter read with English coolness, and having finished, I understand, said he, perfectly. Then began the questions, which were similar to those which had been addressed to the Abbe Busoni. But as Lord Wilmore, in the character of the Count's enemy, was less restrained in his answers, they were more numerous. He described the youth of Monte Cristo, who he said at ten years of age entered the service of one of the petty sovereigns of India who made war on the English. It was there Wilmore had first met him and fought against him. And in that war, Zakon had been taken prisoner sent to England, and consigned to the hulks, whence he had escaped by swimming. Then began his travels, his duels, his caprice, then the insurrection in Greece broke out, and he had served in the Grecian ranks. While in that service he had discovered a silver mine in the mountains of Thessaly, but he had been careful to conceal it from everyone. After the Battle of Navarino, when the Greek government was consolidated, he asked of King Otho a mining grant for that district, which was given him. Hence that immense fortune which, in Lord Wilmore's opinion, possibly amounted to one or two millions per annum, a precarious fortune which might be momentarily lost by the failure of the mine. But, asked the visitor, do you know why he came to France? He is speculating in railways, said Lord Wilmore. And as he is an expert chemist and physicist, he has invented a new system of telegraphy, which he is seeking to bring to perfection. How much does he spend a yearly? asked the prefect. Not more than five or six hundred thousand francs, said Lord Wilmore. He is a miser. Hatred evidently inspired the Englishman who, knowing no other reproach to bring on the Count, accused him of avarice. Do you know his house at Auteuil? Certainly. What do you know respecting it? Do you wish to know why he bought it? Yes. The Count is a speculator, who will certainly ruin himself in experiments. He supposes there is in the neighbourhood of the house he has bought a mineral spring equal to those at Bagnères, Luchon, Cateret. He is going to turn his house into a bath house, as the Germans term it. He has already dug up all the garden two or three times to find the famous spring, and being unsuccessful, he will soon purchase all the contiguous houses. Now, as I dislike him and hope his railway, his electric telegraph, or his search for baths will ruin him, I am watching for his discomfiture, which must soon take place. What was the cause of your quarrel? When he was in England, he seduced the wife of one of my friends. 
Why do you not seek revenge? I have already fought three duels with him, said the Englishman. The first with the pistol, the second with the sword, and the third with the sabre. And what was the result of those duels? The first time he broke my arm, the second he wounded me in the breast, and the third time made this large wound. The Englishman turned down his shirt collar and showed a scar whose redness proved it to be a recent one. So that, you see, there is a deadly feud between us. But, said the envoy, you do not go about it in the right way to kill him, if I understand you correctly. Oh, said the Englishman, I practice shooting every day, and every other day Grisier comes to my house. This was all the visitor wished to ascertain, or rather all the Englishman appeared to know. The agent arose, and having bowed to Lord Wilmore, who returned his salutation with the stiff politeness of the English, he retired. Lord Wilmore, having heard the door close after him, returned to his bedroom, where with one hand he pulled off his light hair, his red whiskers, his false jaw, and his wound, to resume the black hair, dark complexion, and pearly teeth of the Count of Monte Cristo. It was Monsieur de Villefort, and not the prefect, who returned to the house of Monsieur de Villefort. The procureur felt more at ease, although he had learned nothing really satisfactory. And for the first time since the dinner party at Auteuil, he slept soundly. End of chapter 69「Chapter seventy of the Count of Monte Cristo by Alexandre Dumas. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter seventy The Ball. It was in the warmest days of July, when in due course of time the Saturday arrived upon which the ball was to take place at Monsieur de Morcerf's. It was ten o'clock at night. The branches of the great trees in the garden of the Count's house stood out boldly against the azure canopy of heaven which was studded with golden stars but where the last fleeting clouds of a vanishing storm yet lingered from the apartments on the ground floor might be heard the sound of music with the whirl of the waltz and gallop while brilliant streams of light shone through the openings of the venetian blinds at this moment the garden was only occupied by about ten servants who had just received orders from their mistress to prepare the supper the serenity of the weather continuing to increase until now it had been undecided whether the supper should take place in the dining-room or under a long tent erected on the lawn but the beautiful blue sky studded with stars had settled the question in favour of the lawn the gardens were illuminated with coloured lanterns according to the italian custom and as is usual in countries where the luxuries of the table the rarest of all luxuries in their complete form are well understood the supper table was loaded with wax lights and flowers at the time the countess of morcerf returned to the rooms after giving her orders many guests were arriving more attracted by the charming hospitality of the countess than by the distinguished position of the count for owing to the good taste of mercedes one was sure of finding some devices at her entertainment worthy of describing 
or even copying in case of need madame danglars in whom the events we have related had caused deep anxiety had hesitated about going to madame de morcerf's when during the morning her carriage happened to meet that of villefort the latter made a sign and when the carriages had drawn close together said you are going to madame de morcerf's are you not no replied madame danglars i am too ill you are wrong replied villefort significantly it is important that you should be seen there do you think so asked the baroness i do in that case i will go and the two carriages passed on towards their different destinations madame danglars therefore came not only beautiful in person but radiant with splendour she entered by one door at the time when mercedes appeared at the door the countess took albert to meet madame danglars he approached paid her some well-merited compliments on her toilet and offered his arm to conduct her to her seat albert looked around him you are looking for my daughter said the baroness smiling i confess it replied albert could you have been so cruel as not to bring her calm yourself she has met mademoiselle de villefort and has taken her arm see they are following us both in white dresses one with a bouquet of camellias the other with one of miosotis but tell me well what do you wish to know will not the count of monte cristo be here to-night seventeen replied albert what do you mean i only mean that the count seems the rage replied the viscount smiling and that you are the seventeenth person that has asked me the same question the count is in fashion i congratulate him upon it and have you replied to every one as you have to me ah to be sure i have not answered you be satisfied we shall have this lion we are among the privileged ones were you at the opera yesterday no he was there ah indeed and did, did the eccentric person commit any new originality can he be seen without doing so elsler was dancing in the diable boiteux the greek princess was in ecstasies after the cachucha he placed a magnificent ring on the stem of a bouquet and threw it to the charming dancers who in the third act to do honour to the gift reappeared with it on her finger and the greek princess will she be here no you will be deprived of that pleasure her position in the count's establishment is not sufficiently understood wait leave me here and go and speak to madame de villefort who is trying to attract your attention albert bowed to madame danglars and advanced towards madame de villefort whose lips opened as he approached i wager anything said albert interrupting her that i know what you are about to say well what is it if i guess rightly will you confess it yes on your honor on my honor you were going to ask me if the count of monte cristo had arrived or was expected not at all it is not of him that i am now thinking i was going to ask you if you had received any news of monsieur france yes yesterday 
what did he tell you that he was leaving at the same time as his letter well now then the count the count will come of that you may be satisfied you know that he has another name besides monte cristo no i did not know it monte cristo is the name of an island and he has a family name i never heard it well then i am better informed than you his name is zacon it is possible he is maltese that is also possible the son of a shipowner really you should relate all this aloud you would have the greatest success he served in india discovered a mine in thessaly and comes to paris to establish a mineral water cure at auteuil well i am sure said morcerf this is indeed news am i allowed to repeat it yes but cautiously tell one thing at a time and do not say i told you why so because it is a secret just discovered by whom the police then the news originated at the prefect's last night paris you can understand is astonished at the sight of such unusual splendor and the police have made inquiries well well nothing more is wanting than to arrest the count as a vagabond on the pretext of his being too rich indeed that doubtless would have happened if his credentials had not been so favorable poor count and is he aware of the danger he has been in i think not then it will be but charitable to inform him when he arrives i will not fail to do so just then a handsome young man with bright eyes black hair and glossy moustache respectfully bowed to madame de villefort albert extended his hand madame said albert allow me to present to you monsieur maximilian morel captain of spahis one of our best and above all of our bravest officers i have already had the pleasure of meeting this gentleman at auteuil at the house of the count of monte cristo replied madame de villefort turning away with marked coldness of manner this answer and especially the tone in which it was uttered chilled the heart of poor morel but a recompense was in store for him turning around he saw near the door a beautiful fair face whose large blue eyes were without any marked expression fixed upon him while the bouquet of myosotis was gently raised to her lips the salutation was so well understood that morel with the same expression in his eyes placed his handkerchief to his mouth and these two living statues whose hearts beat so violently under their marble aspect separated from each other by the whole length of the room forgot themselves for a moment or rather forgot the world in their mutual contemplation they might have remained much longer lost in one another without any one noticing their abstraction the count of monte cristo had just entered we have already said that there was something in the count which attracted universal attention wherever he appeared it was not the coat unexceptional in its cut though simple and unornamented it was not the plain white waistcoat it was not the trousers that displayed the foot so perfectly formed 
it was none of these things that attracted the attention it was his pale complexion his waving black hair his calm and serene expression his dark and melancholy eye his mouth chiselled with such marvellous delicacy which so easily expressed such high disdain these were what fixed the attention of all upon him many men might have been handsomer but certainly there could be none whose appearance was more significant if the expression may be used everything about the count seemed to have its meaning for the constant habit of thought which he had acquired had given an ease and vigor to the expression of his face and even to the most trifling gesture scarcely to be understood yet the parisian world is so strange that even all this might not have won attention had there not been connected with it a mysterious story gilded by an immense fortune meanwhile he advanced through the assemblage of guests under a battery of curious glances towards madame de morcerf who standing before a mantelpiece ornamented with flowers had seen his entrance in a looking-glass placed opposite the door and was prepared to receive him she turned towards him with a serene smile just at the moment he was bowing to her no doubt she fancied the count would speak to her while on his side the count thought she was about to address him but both remained silent and after a mere bow monte cristo directed his steps to albert who received him cordially have you seen my mother asked albert i have just had the pleasure replied the count but i have not seen your father see he is down there talking politics with that little group of great geniuses indeed said monte cristo and so those gentlemen down there are men of great talent i should not have guessed it and for what kind of talent are they celebrated you know there are different sorts the tall harsh-looking man is very learned he discovered in the neighborhood of rome a kind of lizard with a vertebra more than lizards usually have and he immediately laid his discovery before the institute the thing was discussed for a long time but finally decided in his favor i can assure you the vertebra made a great noise in the learned world and the gentleman who was only a knight of the legion of honor was made an officer come said monte cristo this cross seems to me to be wisely awarded i suppose had he found another additional vertebra they would have made him a commander very likely said albert and who can that person be who has taken it in his head to wrap himself up in a blue coat embroidered with green oh that coat is not his own it is the republics which deputed david to devise a uniform for the academicians indeed said monte cristo so this gentleman is an academician within the last week he has been made one of the learned assembly and what is his special talent his talent i believe he thrusts pins through the heads of rabbits he makes fowls eat madder and punches the spinal marrow out of dogs with whalebone and he is made a member of the academy of sciences for this no of the french academy but what has the french academy to do with all this i was going to tell you it seems that his experiments have very considerably advanced the cause of science 
doubtless no that his style of writing is very good this must be very flattering to the feelings of the rabbits into whose heads he has thrust pins to the fowls whose bones he has dyed red and to the dogs whose spinal marrow he has punched out albert laughed and the other one demanded the count that one yes the third the one in the dark blue coat yes he is a colleague of the count and one of the most active opponents to the idea of providing the chamber of peers with a uniform he was very successful upon that question he stood badly with the liberal papers but his noble opposition to the wishes of the court is now getting him into favor with the journalists they talk of making him an ambassador and what are his claims to the peerage he has composed two or three comic operas written four or five articles in the siècle and voted five or six years on the ministerial side bravo viscount said monte cristo smiling you are a delightful cicerone and now you will do me a favor will you not what is it do not introduce me to any of these gentlemen and should they wish it you will warn me just then the count felt his arm pressed he turned round it was danglars ah is it you baron said he why do you call me baron said danglars you know that i care nothing for my title i am not like you viscount you like your title do you not certainly replied albert seeing that without my title i should be nothing while you sacrificing the baron would still remain the millionaire which seems to me the finest title under the royalty of july replied danglars unfortunately said monte cristo one's title to a millionaire does not last for life like that of baron peer of france or academician for example the millionaires frank and pullman of frankfort who have just become bankrupts indeed said danglars becoming pale yes i received the news this evening by a courier i had about a million in their hands but warned in time i withdrew it a month ago ah mon dieu exclaimed danglars they have drawn on me for two hundred thousand francs well you can throw out the draft their signature is worth five per cent yes but it is too late said danglars i have honored their bills then said monte cristo here are two hundred thousand francs gone after hush do not mention these things said danglars then approaching monte cristo he added especially before young monsieur cavalcanti after which he smiled and turned towards the young man in question albert had left the count to speak to his mother danglars to converse with young cavalcanti monte cristo was for an instant alone meanwhile the heat became excessive the footmen were hastening through rooms with waiters loaded with ices monte cristo wiped the perspiration from his forehead but drew back when the waiter was presented to him he took no refreshment madame de morcerf did not lose sight of monte cristo she saw that he took nothing and even noticed his gesture of refusal albert 
she asked. "'Did you notice that?' "'What, mother?' "'That the Count has never been willing to partake of food under the roof of Monsieur de Morcerf.' "'Yes, but then he breakfasted with me. Indeed, he made his first appearance in the world on that occasion.' "'But your house is not Monsieur de Morcerf's,' murmured Mercedes. "'And since he has been here, I have watched him.' "'Well?' well he has taken nothing yet the count is very temperate mercedes smiled sadly approach him said she and when the next waiter passes insist upon his taking something but why mother just to please me albert said mercedes albert kissed his mother's hand and drew near the count another salver passed loaded like the preceding ones she saw albert attempt to persuade the count but he obstinately refused albert rejoined his mother she was very pale well said she you see he refuses yes but why need this annoy you you know albert women are singular creatures i should like to have seen the count take something in my house if only an ice perhaps he cannot reconcile himself to the french style of living and might prefer something else oh no i have seen him eat of everything in italy no doubt he does not feel inclined this evening and besides said the countess accustomed as he is to burning climates possibly he does not feel the heat as we do i do not think that for he has complained of feeling almost suffocated and asked why the venetian blinds were not opened as well as the windows in a word said mercedes it was a way of assuring me that his abstinence was intended and she left the room a minute afterwards the blinds were thrown open and through the jessamine and clematis that overhung the window one could see the garden ornamented with lanterns and the supper laid under the tent dancers players talkers all uttered an exclamation of joy every one inhaled with delight the breeze that floated in at the same time mercedes reappeared paler than before but with that imperturbable expression of countenance which she sometimes wore she went straight to the group of which her husband formed the center do not detain this gentleman here count said she they would prefer i should think to breathe in the garden rather than suffocate here since they are not playing ah oh, said a gallant old general who in eighteen o nine had sung partant pour la syrie we will not go alone to the garden then said mercedes i will lead the way turning towards monte cristo she added count will you oblige me with your arm the count almost staggered at these simple words then he fixed his eyes on mercedes it was only a momentary glance but it seemed to the countess to have lasted for a century so much was expressed in that one look he offered his arm to the countess she took it or rather just touched it with her little hand and they together descended the steps lined with rhododendrons and camellias behind them by another outlet a group of about twenty persons rushed into the garden with loud exclamations of delight. End of chapter 70
Chapter seventy one of the Count of Monte Cristo by Alexandre Dumas. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter seventy one Bread and Salt. Madame de Morcerf entered an archway of trees with her companion. It led through a grove of lindens to a conservatory. It was too warm in the room, was it not, Count? she asked. "'Yes, madame, and it was an excellent idea of yours to open the doors and the blinds.' As he ceased speaking, the Count felt the hand of Mercedes tremble. "'But you,' he said, "'with that light dress and without anything to cover you but that gauze scarf, perhaps you feel cold.' "'Do you know where I am leading you?' said the Countess, without replying to the question. "'No, madame,' replied Monte Cristo. "'But you see, I make no resistance.' "'We are going to the greenhouse that you see at the other end of the grove.' The Count looked at Mercedes as if to interrogate her, but she continued to walk on in silence, and he refrained from speaking. They reached the building, ornamented with magnificent fruits, which ripen at the beginning of July in the artificial temperature which takes the place of the sun, so frequently absent in our climate. The countess left the arm of Monte Cristo and gathered a bunch of muscatel grapes. "'See, Count,' she said with a smile so sad in its expression that one could almost detect the tears on her eyelids. "'See, our French grapes are not to be compared, I know, with yours of Sicily and Cyprus. But you will make allowance for our northern sun.' The Count bowed but stepped back. "'Do you refuse?' said Mercedes in a tremulous voice. "'Pray excuse me, madame,' replied Monte Cristo. "'But I never eat muscatel grapes.' Mercedes let them fall and sighed. A magnificent peach was hanging against an adjoining wall, ripened by the same artificial heat. Mercedes drew near and plucked the fruit. "'Take this peach, then.' she said the count again refused what again she exclaimed in so plaintive an accent that it seemed to stifle a sob really you pain me a long silence followed the peach like the grapes fell to the ground count added mercedes with a supplicating glance there is a beautiful arabian custom which makes eternal friends of those who have eaten together bread and salt under the same roof i know it madame replied the count but we are in france and not in arabia and in france eternal friendships are as rare as the custom of dividing bread and salt with one another but said the countess breathlessly with her eyes fixed on monte cristo whose arm she convulsively pressed with both hands we our friends are we not the count became pale as death the blood rushed to his heart and then again rising dyed his cheeks with crimson his eyes swam like those of a man suddenly dazzled certainly we are friends he replied why should we not be the answer was so little like the one mercedes desired that she turned away to give vent to a sigh which sounded more like a groan. 
thank you she said and they walked on again they went the whole length of the garden without uttering a word sir suddenly exclaimed the countess after their walk had continued ten minutes in silence is it true that you have seen so much travel so far and suffered so deeply i have suffered deeply madame answered monte cristo but now you are happy doubtless replied the count since no one hears me complain and your present happiness has it softened your heart my present happiness equals my past misery said the count are you not married asked the countess i married exclaimed monte cristo shuddering who could have told you so no one told me you were but you have frequently been seen at the opera with a young and lovely woman she is a slave whom i bought at constantinople madame the daughter of a prince i have adopted her as my daughter having no one else to love in the world you live alone then i do you have no sister no son no father i have no one how can you exist thus without anyone to attach you to life it is not my fault madame at malta i loved a young girl was on the point of marrying her when war came and carried me away i thought she loved me well enough to wait for me and even to remain faithful to my memory when i returned she was married this is the history of most men who have passed twenty years of age perhaps my heart was weaker than the hearts of most men and i suffered more than they could have done in my place that is all the countess stopped for a moment as if gasping for breath yes she said and you have still preserved this love in your heart one can only love once and did you ever see her again never never i never returned to the country where she lived to malta yes malta she is then now at malta i think so and have you forgiven her for all she has made you suffer her yes but only her do you then still hate those who separated you i hate them not at all why should i the countess placed herself before monte cristo still holding in her hand a portion of the perfumed grapes take some she said madam i never eat muscatel grapes replied monte cristo as if the subject had not been mentioned before the countess dashed the grapes into the nearest thicket with a gesture of despair inflexible man she murmured monte cristo remained as unmoved as if the reproach had not been addressed to him albert at this moment ran in oh mother he exclaimed such a misfortune has happened what what has happened asked the countess as though awakening from a sleep to the realities of life did you say a misfortune indeed i should expect misfortunes monsieur de villefort is here well 
he comes to fetch his wife and daughter why so because madame de saint Maron is just arrived in paris bringing the news of monsieur de saint Maron's death which took place on the first stage after he left marseilles madame de villefort who was in very good spirits would neither believe nor think of the misfortune but mademoiselle valentine at the first words guessed the whole truth notwithstanding all the precautions of her father the blow struck her like a thunderbolt and she fell senseless and how was monsieur de saint Meran related to mademoiselle de villefort said the count he was her grandfather on the mother's side he was coming here to hasten her marriage with france ah indeed so france must wait why was not monsieur de saint Meran also grandfather to mademoiselle d'anglars albert albert said madame de morcerf in a tone of mild reproof what are you saying ah oh, count he esteems you so highly tell him that he has spoken amiss and she took two or three steps forward monte cristo watched her with an air so thoughtful and so full of affectionate admiration that she turned back and grasped his hand at the same time she seized that of her son and joined them together we are friends are we not she asked oh madame i do not presume to call myself your friend but at all times i am your most respectful servant the countess left with an indescribable pang in her heart and before she had taken ten steps the count saw her raise her handkerchief to her eyes do not my mother and you agree asked albert astonished on the contrary replied the count did you not hear her declare that we were friends they re-entered the drawing-room which valentine and madame de villefort had just quitted it is perhaps needless to add that morel departed almost at the same time end of chapter seventy one Chapter seventy two of the Count of Monte Cristo by Alexandre Dumas. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter seventy two Madame de Saint Meran. A gloomy scene had indeed just passed at the house of Monsieur de Villefort. After the ladies had departed for the ball, whither all the entreaties of Madame de Villefort had failed in persuading him to accompany them, the procureur had shut himself up in his study according to his custom with a heap of papers calculated to alarm anyone else but which generally scarcely satisfied his inordinate desires but this time the papers were a mere matter of form villefort had secluded himself not to study but to reflect and with the door locked and orders given that he should not be disturbed excepting for important business he sat down in his armchair and began to ponder over the events the remembrance of which had during the last eight days filled his mind with so many gloomy thoughts and bitter recollections then instead of plunging into the mass of documents piled before him he opened the drawer of his desk touched a spring and drew out a parcel of cherished memoranda amongst which he had carefully arranged in characters only known to himself the names of all those who either in his political career 
in money matters at the bar or in his mysterious love affairs had become his enemies their number was formidable now that he had begun to fear and yet these names powerful though they were had often caused him to smile with the same kind of satisfaction experienced by a traveller who from the summit of a mountain beholds at his feet the craggy eminences the almost impassable paths and the fearful chasms through which he has so perilously climbed when he had run over all those names in his memory again read and studied them commenting meanwhile upon his lists he shook his head no he murmured none of my enemies would have waited so patiently and laboriously for so long a space of time that they might now come and crush me with this secret sometimes as hamlet says foul deeds will rise though all the earth overwhelm them to men's eyes but like a phosphoric light they rise but to mislead the story has been told by the Corsican to some priest, who in his turn has repeated it. Monsieur de Monte Cristo may have heard it, and to enlighten himself. But why should he wish to enlighten himself upon the subject? asked Villefort, after a moment's reflection. What interest can this Monsieur de Monte Cristo, or Monsieur Zaccone, son of a shipowner of Malta, discover of a mine in Thessaly, now visiting paris for the first time what interest i say can he take in discovering a gloomy mysterious and useless fact like this however among all the incoherent details given to me by the abbe Bussoni, and by lord wilmore by that friend and that enemy one thing appears certain and clear in my opinion that in no period in no case in no circumstance could there have been any contact between him and me but villefort uttered words which even he himself did not believe he dreaded not so much the revelation for he could reply to or deny its truth he cared little for that mean tickle upharsin which appeared suddenly in letters of blood upon the wall but what he was really anxious for was to discover whose hand had traced them while he was endeavouring to calm his fears and instead of dwelling upon the political future that had so often been the subject of his ambitious dreams was imagining a future limited to the enjoyments of home in fear of awakening the enemy that had so long slept the noise of a carriage sounded in the yard then he heard the steps of an aged person ascending the stairs followed by tears and lamentations such as servants always give vent to when they wish to appear interested in their master's grief he drew back the bolt of his door and almost directly an old lady entered unannounced carrying her shawl on her arm and her bonnet in her hand the white hair was thrown back from her yellow forehead and her eyes already sunken by the furrows of age now almost disappeared beneath the eyelids swollen with grief oh sir she said oh sir what a misfortune i shall die of it oh yes i shall certainly die of it and then falling upon the chair nearest the door she burst into a paroxysm of sobs the servants standing in the doorway not daring to approach nearer were looking at noirtier's old servant who had heard the noise from his master's room and run there also 
remaining behind the others. Villefort rose and ran towards his mother-in-law, for it was she. "'Why, what can have happened?' he exclaimed. "'What has thus disturbed you? Is Monsieur de Saint-Méran with you?' "'Monsieur de Saint-Méran is dead.' answered the old marchioness without preface and without expression she appeared to be stupefied villefort drew back and clasping his hands together exclaimed dead so suddenly a week ago continued madame de saint marin we went out together in the carriage after dinner monsieur de saint marin had been unwell for some days still the idea of seeing our dear valentine again inspired him with courage and notwithstanding his illness he would leave at six leagues from marseilles after having eaten some of the lozenge he is accustomed to take he fell into such a deep sleep that it appeared to me unnatural still i hesitated to wake him although i fancied that his face was flushed and that the veins of his temple throbbed more violently than usual however as it became dark and i could no longer see i fell asleep i was soon aroused by a piercing shriek as from a person suffering in his dreams and he suddenly threw his head back violently i called the valet i stopped the postilion i spoke to monsieur de saint meran i applied my smelling salts but all was over and i arrived at x by the side of a corpse villefort stood with his mouth half open quite stupefied of course you sent for a doctor immediately but as i have told you it was too late yes but then he could tell of what complaint the poor marquis had died oh yes sir he told me it appears to have been an apoplectic stroke and what did you do then monsieur de saint meran had always expressed a desire in case his death happened during his absence from paris that his body might be brought to the family vault i had him put into a leaden coffin and i am preceding him by a few days oh my poor mother said villefort to have such duties to perform at your age after such a blow god has supported me through all and then my dear marquis he would certainly have done everything for me that i perform for him it is true that since i left him i seem to have lost my senses i cannot cry at my age they say that we have no more tears still i think that when one is in trouble one should have the power of weeping where is valentine sir it is on her account i am here i wish to see valentine villefort thought it would be terrible to reply that valentine was at a ball so he only said that she had gone out with her stepmother and that she should be fetched this instant sir this instant i beseech you said the old lady villefort placed the arm of madame de saint meran within his own and conducted her to his apartment rest yourself mother he said the marchioness raised her head at this word and beholding the man who so forcibly reminded her of her deeply regretted child 
who still lived for her in valentine she felt touched at the name of mother and bursting into tears she fell on her knees before an armchair where she buried her venerable head villefort left her to the care of the women while old barois ran half scared to his master for nothing frightens old people so much as when death relaxes its vigilance over them for a moment in order to strike some other old person then while madame de saint Maron remained on her knees praying fervently villefort sent for a cab and went himself to fetch his wife and daughter from madame de morcerf's he was so pale when he appeared at the door of the ballroom that valentine ran to him saying oh father some misfortune has happened your grandmamma has just arrived valentine said monsieur de villefort and grandpapa inquired the young girl trembling with apprehension monsieur de villefort only replied by offering his arm to his daughter it was just in time for valentine's head swam and she staggered madame de villefort instantly hastened to her assistance and aided her husband in dragging her to the carriage saying what a singular event who could have thought it ah yes it is indeed strange and the wretched family departed leaving a cloud of sadness hanging over the rest of the evening at the foot of the stairs valentine found barois awaiting her monsieur noirtier wishes to see you to-night he said in an undertone tell him i will come when i leave my dear grandmamma she replied feeling with true delicacy that the person to whom she could be of the most service just then was madame de saint Maron. valentine found her grandmother in bed silent caresses heart-wrung sobs broken sighs burning tears were all that passed in this sad interview while madame de villefort leaning on her husband's arm maintained all outward forms of respect at least towards the poor widow she soon whispered to her husband i think it would be better for me to retire with your permission for the sight of me appears still to afflict your mother-in-law madame de saint Maron heard her yes yes she said softly to valentine let her leave but do you stay madame de villefort left and valentine remained alone beside the bed for the procureur overcome with astonishment at the unexpected death had followed his wife meanwhile barois had returned for the first time to old noirtier who having heard the noise in the house had as we have said sent his old servant to inquire the cause on his return his quick intelligent eye interrogated the messenger alas sir exclaimed barois a great misfortune has happened madame de saint Maron has arrived and her husband is dead monsieur de saint Maron and noirtier had never been on strict terms of friendship still the death of one old man always considerably affects another noirtier let his head fall upon his chest apparently overwhelmed and thoughtful then he closed one eye in token of inquiry mademoiselle valentine noirtier nodded his head she is at the ball as you know since she came to say good-bye to you in full dress noirtier again closed his left eye do you wish to see her 
Noirtier again made an affirmative sign. "'Well, they have gone to fetch her, no doubt, from Madame de Morcerf's. I will await her return, and beg her to come up here. Is that what you wish for?' "'Yes,' replied the invalid. Barrois, therefore, as we have seen, watched for Valentine, and informed her of her grandfather's wish. Consequently, Valentine came up to Noirtier on leaving Madame de Saint-Méron, who, in the midst of her grief, had at last yielded to fatigue and fallen into a feverish sleep. Within reach of her hand they placed a small table upon which stood a bottle of orangeade, her usual beverage, and a glass. Then, as we have said, the young girl left the bedside to see Monsieur Noirtier. Valentine kissed the old man, who looked at her with such tenderness that her eyes again filled with tears, whose sources he thought must be exhausted. The old gentleman continued to dwell upon her with the same expression. "'Yes, yes,' said Valentine. "'You mean that I have yet a kind grandfather left, do you not?' The old man intimated that such was his meaning. "'Ah, yes, happily I have,' replied Valentine. "'Without that, what would become of me?' It was one o'clock in the morning. Barrois, who wished to go to bed himself, observed that after such sad events everyone stood in need of rest. Noirtier would not say that the only rest he needed was to see his child, but wished her a good night, for grief and fatigue had made her appear quite ill. The next morning she found her grandmother in bed, the fever had not abated. On the contrary, her eyes glistened, and she appeared to be suffering from violent nervous irritability. "'Oh, dear grandmamma, are you worse?' exclaimed Valentine, perceiving all these signs of agitation. "'No, my child, no,' said Madame de Saint-Méran. "'But I was impatiently waiting for your arrival, that I might send for your father.' "'My father?' inquired valentine uneasily yes i wish to speak to him valentine durst not oppose her grandmother's wish the cause of which she did not know and an instant afterwards villefort entered sir said madame de saint meron without using any circumlocution and as if fearing she had no time to lose you wrote to me concerning the marriage of this child yes madame replied Villefort. It is not only projected, but arranged. Your intended son-in-law is named Monsieur Franz d'Epinay. Yes, madame. Is he not the son of General d'Epinay, who was under our side and who was assassinated some days before the usurper returned from the island of Elba? The same. Does he not dislike the idea of marrying the granddaughter of a Jacobin? "'Our civil dissensions are now happily extinguished, mother,' said Villefort. "'Monsieur d'Epinay was quite a child when his father died. "'He knows very little of Monsieur Noirtier, "'and will meet him, if not with pleasure, at least with indifference.' "'Is it a suitable match?' "'In every respect.' "'And the young man?' "'Is regarded with universal esteem.' "'You approve of him?' "'He is one of the most well-bred young men I know.' During the whole of this conversation, Valentine had remained silent. "'Well, sir,' said Madame de saint 
after a few minutes reflection i must hasten the marriage for i have but a short time to live you madame you dear mamma exclaimed monsieur de villefort and valentine at the same time i know what i am saying continued the marchioness i must hurry you so that as she has no mother she may at least have a grandmother to bless her marriage i am all that is left to her belonging to my poor rene whom you have so soon forgotten sir oh madame said villefort you forget that i was obliged to give a mother to my child a stepmother is never a mother sir but this is not to the purpose our business concerns valentine let us leave the dead in peace all this was said with such exceeding rapidity that there was something in the conversation that seemed like the beginning of delirium it shall be as you wish madame said villefort more especially since your wishes coincide with mine and as soon as monsieur d'epinay arrives in paris my dear grandmother interrupted valentine consider decorum the recent death you would not have me marry under such sad auspices my child exclaimed the old lady sharply let us hear none of the conventional objections that deter weak minds from preparing for the future i also was married at the deathbed of my mother and certainly i have not been less happy on that account still that idea of death madame said villefort still always i tell you i am going to die do you understand well before dying i wish to see my son-in-law i wish to tell him to make my child happy i wish to read in his eyes whether he intends to obey me in fact i will know him i will continued the old lady with a fearful expression that i may rise from the depths of my grave to find him if he should not fulfil his duty madame said villefort you must lay aside these exalted ideas which almost assume the appearance of madness the dead once buried in their graves rise no more and i tell you sir that you are mistaken this night i have had a fearful sleep it seemed as though my soul were already hovering over my body my eyes which i tried to open closed against my will and what will appear impossible above all to you sir i saw with my eyes shut in the spot where you are now standing issuing from that corner where there is a door leading into madame villefort's dressing-room i saw i tell you silently enter a white figure valentine screamed it was the fever that disturbed you madame said villefort doubt if you please but i am sure of what i say i saw a white figure and as if to prevent my discrediting the testimony of only one of my senses i heard my glass removed the same which is there now on the table oh dear mother it was a dream so little was it a dream that i stretched my hand toward the bell but when i did so the shade disappeared my maid then entered with a light but she saw no one phantoms are visible to those only who ought to see them 
it was the soul of my husband well if my husband's soul can come to me why should not my soul appear to guard my granddaughter the tie is even more direct it seems to me oh madame said villefort deeply affected in spite of himself do not yield to these gloomy thoughts you will long live with us happy loved and honored and we will make you forget never 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 said the marchioness when does monsieur d'epinay return we expect him every moment it is well as soon as he arrives inform me we must be expeditious and then i also wish to see a notary that i may be assured that all our property returns to valentine oh grandmamma murmured valentine pressing her lips on the burning brow do you wish to kill me oh how feverish you are we must not send for a notary but for a doctor a doctor said she shrugging her shoulders i am not ill i am thirsty that is all what are you drinking dear grandmamma the same as usual my dear my glass is there on the table give it to me valentine valentine poured the orangeade into a glass and gave it to her grandmother with a certain degree of dread for it was the same glass she fancied that had been touched by the spectre the marchioness drained the glass at a single draught and then turned on her pillow repeating the notary the notary monsieur de villefort left the room and valentine seated herself at the bedside of her grandmother the poor child appeared herself to require the doctor she had recommended to her aged relative a bright spot burned in either cheek her respiration was short and difficult and her pulse beat with feverish excitement she was thinking of the despair of maximilian when he should be informed that madame de saint meron instead of being an ally was unconsciously acting as his enemy more than once she thought of revealing all to her grandmother and she would not have hesitated a moment if maximilian morel had been named albert de morcerf or raoul de chateaurenaud but morel was of plebeian extraction and valentine knew how the haughty marquise de saint meron despised all who were not noble her secret had each time been repressed when she was about to reveal it by the sad conviction that it would be useless to do so for were it once discovered by her father and mother all would be lost two hours passed thus madame de saint meron was in a feverish sleep and the notary had arrived though his coming was announced in a very low tone madame de saint meron arose from her pillow the notary she exclaimed let him come in the notary who was at the door immediately entered go valentine said madame de saint meron and leave me with this gentleman but grandmamma leave me go the young girl kissed her grandmother and left with her handkerchief to her eyes at the door she found the valet de chambre who told her that the doctor was waiting in the dining-room valentine instantly ran down the doctor was a friend of the family and at the same time one of the cleverest men of the day and very fond of valentine whose birth he had witnessed he had himself a daughter about her age but whose life was one continued source of anxiety and fear to him from her mother having been consumptive oh said valentine 
we have been waiting for you with such impatience dear monsieur d'avigny but first of all how are madeline and antoinette madeline was the daughter of monsieur d'avigny and antoinette his niece monsieur d'avigny smiled sadly antoinette is very well he said and madeline tolerably so uh, but you sent for me my dear child it is not your father or madame de villefort who is ill as for you although we doctors cannot divest our patients of nerves i fancy you have no further need of me than to recommend you not to allow your imagination to take too wide a field valentine coloured monsieur d'avrigny carried the science of divination almost to a miraculous extent for he was one of the physicians who always work upon the body through the mind no she replied it is for my dear grandmother you know the calamity that has happened to us do you not i know nothing said monsieur d'avrigny alas said valentine restraining her tears my grandfather is dead monsieur de saint meran yes suddenly from an apoplectic stroke an apoplectic stroke repeated the doctor yes and my poor grandmother fancies that her husband whom she never left has called her and that she must go and join him oh monsieur d'avrigny i beseech you do something for her where is she in her room with the notary and monsieur noirtier just as he was his mind perfectly clear but the same incapability of moving or speaking and the same love for you eh my dear child yes said valentine he was very fond of me who does not love you valentine smiled sadly what are your grandmother's symptoms an extreme nervous excitement and a strangely agitated sleep she fancied this morning in her sleep that her soul was hovering above her body which she at the same time watched it must have been delirium she fancies too that she saw a phantom enter her chamber and even heard the noise it made on touching her glass it is singular said the doctor i was not aware that madame somaran was subject to such hallucinations it is the first time i have ever saw her in this condition said valentine and this morning she frightened me so that i thought her mad and my father who you know is a strong-minded man himself appeared deeply impressed we will go and see said the doctor what you tell me seems very strange the notary here descended and valentine was informed that her grandmother was alone go upstairs she said to the doctor and you oh i dare not she forbade me sending for you and as you say i am myself agitated feverish and out of sorts i will go and take a turn in the garden to recover myself the doctor pressed valentine's hand and while he visited her grandmother she descended the steps we need not say which portion of the garden was her favorite walk after remaining for a short time in the parterre surrounding the house and gathering a rose to place in her waist or hair she turned into the dark avenue which led to the bench then from the bench she went to the gate as usual valentine strolled for a short time among her flowers 
but without gathering them. The mourning in her heart forbade her assuming this simple ornament, though she had not yet had time to put on the outward semblance of woe. She then turned towards the avenue. As she advanced, she fancied she heard a voice speaking her name. She stopped, astonished. Then the voice reached her ear more distinctly, and she recognized it to be that of Maximilian. End of chapter 72、Bet-MGM-Champion150.Then Place a five-dollar wager on any sport. You'll receive one hundred and fifty dollars in bonus bets, regardless of your wager's outcome. And if you think the fun stops there, the king of sportsbooks has plenty of surprises in store. Check out daily promotions, same-game parlays, live bets, and so much more. Download the app in Virginia today and get one hundred and fifty dollars in bonus bets instantly from your first wager only at BetMGM. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. See betmgm.com for terms. Twenty-one plus only. Virginia only. New customer offer. Subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Please gamble responsibly. Gambling problem? Call one eight hundred GAMBLER. Promotional offer not available in Washington D.C.